Welcome back, Westorians. It is Tuesday, circa 6 o'clock Eastern Standard. My name is Aziz, and it is a time for our weekly Fire and Blood livestream. It is so much fun digesting new material. Uh, I find myself every week reading my copy of Fire and Blood just to try to see if I can find one or two more nuggets to add to the stream, and that's how it's going to be for a while because... Well, we got over 700 pages of new material, and people are still figuring out things about A Storm of Swords, A Game of Thrones, books that have been out for far longer. So it stands to reason that even though this isn't uh, written exactly like a novel, there's going to be lots of things we're figuring out about this book uh, for quite a while still. As we have been doing every week, we have brought on some fun guests to talk about some cool topics. In this case, we had bit off more than we could chew in a previous episode and had a lot left over. And so we brought back one of the two guests from that episode because she had contributed so many fantastic notes on this topic of the new Tower of Joy associated with the Golden Wedding and Rogar Baratheon, Jaehaerys and Alysanne and the War for the White Cloaks, as well as the Doctrine of Exceptionalism. These are our targets for today. I'm going to stop calling them Stop saying that we're going to get to everything in one day because we keep meh, coming up a little short and you never know how long these discussions will go. So we're going to try to get to all those things. I'm going to stop promising that we're going to actually do them. So without any further ado, let's introduce our guests. First off is our returning guest from two weeks ago, a lot, very familiar around these parts, Lady Gwen. Welcome back. Hello. Great to be back. I'm excited to talk about some of these topics. Like you said, I had some thoughts about quite a few of them. <laughs> You are one of the fandom's reigning experts on the Tower of Joy, so not only did you contribute so much to the notes for this episode, but because of your your uh, knowledge on this topic, it really just would have been a mistake not to bring you back. And of course, uh, I also should mention Chloe, who whose notes also we are using some of for this episode. She was our co-guest the same episode as um, Lady Gwen was, so thanks to her, for because we're going to be using some of her notes <laughs> in this episode. But... Uh, Returning to the show as well, this is his first appearance on our Fire and Blood streams, but not nearly his first appearance on History of Westeros podcast, is Stephen Atwell. Welcome back, Stephen. Hello. <laughs> Good. Glad to be back. Right on. Stephen, of course, has been a big part of our Blackfire series, and tell us what you're working on these days. I know you're doing, you're still doing your write-ups, and you're doing write-ups on yeah. Fire and Blood too, right? So, yeah, I've, I've uh, gone through, let me see, uh, 10 chapters of Fire and Blood. Uh, I'm a little bit further than we're, we're going to get in, uh, in this episode. Uh, I'm thinking of taking a break after I'm done with the Jaharis section because it's, it is, uh, quite a lot of material and it's, <laughs> it, it's been a little bit, uh, burnouty, uh, to, to try to sort of wrestle these giant chapters into some sort of coherent frame. Uh, and also, you know, I just, I want to like finish that short story I was writing and I want to do a little bit more Storm of Swords, and then I'll start doing more Fire and Blood. Cool. So yeah, so you're, uh, as far as your long-running chapter write-ups, you you said you're on Storm of Swords. I've, I've lost track, because I've, I've lost track of a lot of people's creative yeah, efforts uh, right now because of Fire and Blood, to be honest. So keep, tell yeah, us where you're so at on that. The last one I did, I believe, was Jamie 4 back in October. Okay, and... So it's been a good which one. Which one is Jamie 4? The numbers, I sometimes... That's that's the one where he gets to uh, Hall 
and Ooh. has his hand uh, sewn up by Kaiba. Oh, so it's right, just the chapter before the bath scene, is that? Or is it the same one? Yes. Just before? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the one before. Great. All right. That's excellent. Yes, Stephen does wonderful work covering uh, the chapters one at a time on his, uh, on his blog, Race for the Iron Throne. And uh, you are also you're doing all kinds of projects. We couldn't possibly list them all here, but we'll we'll lay, we'll maybe name a few more of them when we do our uh, outro. <laughs> sure thing. Okay, well we're getting started in the right way. We already have a super chat from Acre Frey who says, "You know what brings real joy? Iris." I, see, I already said it wrong. Already, Irish <laughs> wristwatches. Okay, I don't think we've ever had Stephen say Irish wristwatch. So that's that's a Irish wrist watches. <laughs> I just took my time at it, paused a little bit at wrist, but got through. Slow and yeah. steady is the Slow key. And, it's true. Yeah. Slow yeah. and steady definitely wins the race and tongue twister. See, he's yeah. the man who knows what he's doing. <laughs> okay, so as always, you can suggest questions, suggest topics. Uh, we have, I've been trying to wrestle with this like steven says it's it's a lot of material and to try to get these streams a little more organized my goal sort of is to make each live stream a little bit more organized than the last and in in doing that one piece of particular piece of effort i've put into that is trying to nail down all the different topics we want to cover trying to put them under different umbrellas as well as map out who the guests are going to be as far in advance as possible so that should help um, have fewer problems with us running over, not ha- not covering everything we wanted to cover in episode. The topics will be a little tighter. So that's that's my goal. But I also would, would we definitely want to rely on your feedback as much as possible. So if you have topic suggestions for Fire and Blood, we'll certainly take those into account. Some of the obvious ones that are uh, that we're percolating around on, or maybe not obvious. We've talked about covering the shivers, which we expect to do that next week. Uh, the winter fever as well. We want to talk about Egg on the Third quite a lot. Eventually, um, compare him to Jon Snow as well as analyze him on his own. We want to do a comparison of Kristen Cole and Barristan Selmy. We want to compare Varys and Laris. Uh, we want to talk about the Sea Snake and Oakenfist and all the different queens, Reyna and Elissa, as, as well the ones who were widowed and the ones who weren't. Um, widowed queens are kind of an interesting thing because you don't see widower kings. Uh, they're kind of a unique uh, class of their own. Um, and uh, there's a lot of parallels between Reyna and and Cersei, and a lot of other parallels between some of these other characters. So we'll get to those when we do, and uh, get that sorted. Of course, we're going to have a couple of parallel lives this episode. And um, let's see, what other announcements do we have? Uh, Shea just recorded uh, a guest episode with Girls Gone Canon, speaking of uh, Chloe, who we mentioned earlier, but that's not up yet, so we will certainly let you all know when it is. Uh, that's on, uh, which chapter? It was on Sansa, right? Sansa two. Sansa 2? Elaine 2, of course. Elaine 2 for Feast for Crows. Great chapter. We also just put up our Gagasos episode. It's up for patrons right now. And it's only going to be up for patrons. It's a We only we do a patrons-only episode about once a year. And, well, this one really would have been 2018's version of that. It's all about blood magic and sorcery and Targaryens being part dragon and fireworms and Victorian's arm and all sorts of cool stuff like that. So there are now three patrons-only episodes from History of Westeros, Aziz versus the uh, Feast for Crows prologue, uh, me covering the North Remembers chapter, and now this one. So if you sign up on Patreon, you can get up to three bonus episodes. All right, so let's, speaking of that, let's do a couple shout-outs. Our first sword is Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper, and we have a couple of Dragon Rider patrons to shout-out as well. That would be Telenis the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Telerius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of Midnight Black, and... 
Robert the Fourth of House Ardeacor, burned king of Blazewater Bay, rider of Atroxus, the black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. Cool. That's that. Let's get into it. Uh, we're going to go in a roughly chronological order as it applies to these topics, but there's, of course, going to be some overlap, as there always is. So I think we'll start with the Golden Wedding. The Golden Wedding is, uh, I think, is going to have some relevance to A Song of Ice and Fire coming forward. Um, in The Winds of Winter, I think we're going to see the opposite of what Varus has been doing, uh, meaning that he's been creating chaos and undermining the royal family and, you know, making riots and things like that. I think since now his chosen candidate is landed on Westeros and making war on the Seven Kingdoms trying to take the throne, all of a sudden these things are going to start going right. <laughs> it's going to be things are going to start working out for, for, for Aegon. Somehow behind the scenes things are going to be working t for him instead of against the Lannisters and, and the Tyrells and all that. So uh, maybe we'll see the peasants you know, happier with him, maybe see some behind-the-scenes alliances. And how does this all relate to the wedding? Well, I think that they're going to have to make a big splash to, to show that Aegon is this type of person that Varys and Illyrio have been making him out to be, this king who grew up amongst the commoners, who knows what it's like to suffer and all that. So let's start off with y'all's takes on how uh, this might relate to the Young Griff plot, and how, um, you know, some of these things we expect them to do to legitimize him and to make him popular. I uh, will start with uh, Stephen. Um, so, I mean, I guess the, the sort of the clearest example, you know, if there is going to be a second golden wedding, I think the clearest, excuse me, the clearest parallel is this idea that what a big wedding allows you to do is bring together the whole of the political class to one place and then use, you know, ostentatious uh, sort of um, uh, excellence and uh, sort of, um, what's the right word that I'm looking for here? Sort of stagecraft to kind of overawe them and get them to buy into the narrative and the political structure that you're selling. So, you know, in the case of the Golden Wedding, right, you have the high towers and the Lannisters and the Starks and the Marcher Lords and even some foreign dignitaries. And you've got this sort of, you know, tens of thousands of people watching. You have the high sept in there that might happen in the, the new one, uh, depending on how you interpret the whole line about the, um, mummer's dragon and the cheering crowd. Um, they had a sea bat mock sea battle, <laughs> uh, to be fought in the waters of Blackwater Bay. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, and you know, uh, feasting and all that stuff. And there's sort of a darker side to some of this as well. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, especially with sort of what, uh, Rogar gets up to. Yeah. What on earth? <laughs> this, with uh, all those, during the bachelor the party. Women. Yeah. That is just. Um, so yeah, I can definitely see, I mean, Varys is someone, you know, uh, who has always sort of put forward an argument for, uh, symbolic politics. I mean, that is actually what his whole speech about the, um, how, how power uh, works. The cell, yeah. The cell sword and the, the knight, and the, uh, excuse me, uh, the cell sword, the merchant, the king yeah. and the priest, uh, you know, that was the, the actual meaning of it. It's sort of an argument against the kind of, you know, uh, you win or you die hard politics of, of the Lannisters. 
So I can see that happening. Yeah, the Golden Wedding almost to me is not. It, it, we wanted, it, it certainly does compare in some ways to the Purple Wedding because that was also a really large, ostentatious display that was sort of, sort of, but it wasn't really trying to heal the realm. It was really just for the Lannisters and their allies. It wasn't, they weren't really trying to invite the Riverlands and the, the North. But the Tournament of Harrenhal, now that, especially as a, pre, uh, a prequel episode to the Tower of Joy, which is kind of what we're focusing on here, it brought everybody together. It wasn't necessarily... Uh, the big difference here is the Golden Wedding was is falling, like Stephen said, it's it's bringing everybody together after a lot of conflict, and that's a big important kind of st- stopover. So, Lady Gwen, let's get your thoughts on on this stuff as well. Well, I mean, you mentioned the Purple Wedding. I I think um, it's a very different situation, but there's been there's been conflict, and what the Lannisters need to do at that point is project their power right yeah and, definitely has that and, element yeah and some form of stability they're they're trying to say while they're not bringing the entire realm together they've got their they've got their primary uh, allies there and they're trying to project hey everything's good here we're powerful and we have it all under control so i think as a symbol of power this great ostentatious event is something that we could well see again and yeah. um as right. far as as far as young Griff goes, I mean, is it too soon to talk about whether we might see a wedding for him? No, I think that's really I wanted. I definitely wanted to talk about that because I think that's maybe what some of this is pointing to. Uh, if if obviously Westeros right now is is more war torn than it was before this golden wedding. I mean, Magor and the Faith and all that was pretty bad. But I think yeah, Westeros I, right now is worse. <laughs> yeah, I would say. So, yeah. It's it's certainly gone on for, well, I I don't know how you calculate it, you know, in terms of the like rebellions against Anus all the way through like Magor's war. That's a good Faith, point. Yeah, and then there was, you know, his his war against Prince Aegon. So it's it's a little bit kind of uh, choppier, but you know, it's certainly the War of Five Kings has gone on for a long time, and um, I think had less in the waves. Stability, like you know, once Magor takes over, you know he is not really dislodged until he dies. I mean, you know, there people keep rising up against him, and then he just smashes them flat. <laughs> Whereas I feel like in in the War of Five Kings to this point, there have been a lot of moments where you know, I mean, kings have been assassinated, the Lannisters have been on the back foot, you know, Renly died. Like, there's a lot of of change. Um, you know, and people not being sure which way to to go. So I think like a second golden wedding, one of the I think the potential advantages is that it, it could potentially symbolically offer like stability. Like, okay, we have a status quo, we have a potential solution to like not just who can win the fighting, but like what does the world after the war look like? Who's in charge? What are the sources of their legitimacy, etc. Good well said. And an interesting question to ask here that is certainly off the beaten path of fire and blood, but a great question to talk about, uh, especially because it relates to this, is who is young Griff going to marry? Is it going to be Arianne? Do you guys think it's going to be Arianne or do you maybe think it'll be somebody else? Um, and, and that's maybe a little bit of a parallel to uh, the way this played out. Not this because the Golden Wedding was Al- Alyssa and Rogar, not Jaehaerys and Alysanne, but Jaehaerys... 
they never actually picked a bride for Jaehaerys because he, you know, he managed to do his thing and, and keep Alsan. Alsan was supposed to be married off, and that's what kicked off the whole, wait, we're not doing that. We're marrying each other. Uh, so I think, um, so that's a good question I think maybe we should talk about right now. Do you guys have uh, thoughts on who you think uh, Young Griff's going to marry, or, or do you think it's kind of up in the air, or, or what? Yeah, yeah, I think, for me, I think it's Arianne, uh, mostly because, I mean, obviously that I, I feel like the spoiler chapters are pointing us in that direction, but I really think the legitimacy that he's he would gain by marrying a Dornish princess like his father did really can't be denied, you know, drawing that direct line from him to Rhaegar. Um, not to mention political and military benefit of an alliance with Dorne. But on the other hand, there there is a good case to be made for the Tyrells throwing in with Aegon and assuming Tommen doesn't make it, you could make a pretty good case that Marjorie uh, <laughs> another, they might throw her into the pot <laughs> and yeah. go for the fourth one. I don't know. But. <laughs> I, I'm I'm of the opinion that Ariane, for a couple, you know, for most of the reasons that you mentioned, plus a few, I think a few others. One is that you know, given that there's already going to be this, you know, since Aegon the sixth is uh, sort of in the shoes of Perkin Warbeck, right? He is representing a supposedly dead king, so he has a kind of a legitimacy issue himself. And there is no better, you know, we saw this with John Connington's letter of saying, like, you know, to the the Martells, like, recognize this person as your kinsman, you know, and marry them. And, like, there can be no stronger statement than, than a marriage alliance that, like, you think someone is who they, they say they are. So I think in that sense, it definitely seems like Ariane to me. The other um, is sort of a more metafictional perspective. Which is that I think it has to do with short term versus long term, and I think that's sort of the story of like Aegon's rise and fall in the next book. Is that you know the in the short term, right? Arianne's the one who's got an army on call. She's the one there right now, and you know he's on the verge of winning it all, right? He just needs to defeat this one army that stands between him and King's Landing, and he's got the Iron Throne. The problem is that the like the long-term play to the extent that you buy, you know, the the story that Tyrion sold him on uh in A Dance with Dragons is that you need to keep your hand open for Daenerys and her dragons. And that, you know, like I I never think there was there was a strong possibility that Daenerys was going to accept a, a secondary role in a Targaryen restoration. But, like, she's definitely not going to go for being the, like, junior wife. <laughs> yeah, wife um, number two. Of someone who's already married. You know, like, they can try for the whole, you know, uh, Aegon and, and Rhaenys and Visenya thing. But, like, I think that's going to be the sort of part of the, like, the hubristic move of, of Aegon. Is that he's going to go for the short-term victory. He's going to marry Arianne, take King's Landing, and then Daenerys shows up. And he's going to, like, you know, say, like, okay, you know, I'll marry you, too. And then it's like, okay, no go. We're having a second dance of the dragons. <laughs> uh, a much shorter Yeah, one. much shorter. Much shorter. Um, so, uh, also, as far as some things we've said, the, the wedding would also give a chance to maybe allow the realm to heal if they have some sort of big wedding. And it would also allow 
as weddings always do, scheming because you have all these people in power that are in the same place at one time. And of course, there there's always the opportunity for assassinations like the Purple Wedding. That seems maybe not that likely to happen again. But we could have something really epic. Um, some Maybe just entertaining a, a theory, um, a compa- some theories that are out there. For example, like the wildfire is going to be a thing at King's Landing at some point. That's been heavily foreshadowed. Uh, the TV show gave us their version of that, which I think is going to be pretty different on the, in the books. But I do think something like that will happen. Um, and w- just imagine these two things together. Imagine <laughs> some sort of wildfire disaster during a big wedding. <laughs> I could call it the green wedding. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. All the other the colors are getting covered. Before. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have a green wedding. But uh, there's a lot of possibilities there. But it's also kind of absurd to think about spending that much money, both the golden wedding and this potential wedding of, of Fagon, given what the realm has just been through. Like, Cersei is is shoving the Iron Bank out the door like, nah, we're not going to pay you right now. <laughs> and and there, so where is this money going to come from if indeed it's going to happen? I, I wonder if... Yeah, I was, I was going to say, like, it was a major political issue for, for uh, the early portion of, of Jaehaerys' reign that, like, the cost of the golden wedding, like had a dramatic impact on on the royal treasury and thus on sort of economic policy um, that, you know, pretty much created a recession. Um, so it's, it's sort of, again, that sort of short-term versus long-term, right? You know, in the short-term, a magnificent spectacle is going to win you a lot of goodwill. But, like, if that then necessitates you know, punishing taxation to pay the bills, you might lose all of the goodwill that you've gained. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Let's, let's throw out a few numbers here just so we get to, just to re- recap, just, just exactly how huge this wedding was. Um, it's 40,000 small folk with the suggestion that it could have, that it was possibly quite a bit larger than that, that the 40,000 was maybe a low estimate. Uh, you have the High Towers and the High Septon. You have Lyman Lannister, who is the same lord that sheltered Aegon the Uncrowned and Reyna. You have Brandon Stark, who is Lord of Winterfell at the time, father to Alaric and Walton. Walton's the one that was killed by giants later. And then we have 30 Knights Watch Brothers, which struck me as slightly odd, not too odd, but maybe a little odd. Did you guys think that was noteworthy at all, that there were Knights Watch Brothers there? I think it's more just the number of them. Like, 30, 30 is a lot. Yeah. Even, even you know, given the fact that we're dealing with the... I think the Night's Watch at this point is... Was it 10,000 strong? Well, it was 20,000 when Aegon landed, and it was supposedly wilting pretty fast given the lack of warring between right. all the kingdoms, yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's going to increase... It's increasing in... It's increased in size recently because a lot of the... the Magor's supporters uh, and the Faith Militant end up going to Good the wall. Good point. But still, I think it's just it's a significant number. Yeah. What about you, Lady Gwen? Did that stand out to you at all? Yeah, it did. I'm just just the number uh, to go that far south. It's a long ways to travel. It was a long ways for the Starks, and they brought. I think it said they brought twelve Lords Bannermen with them too, and all their retinues. So this is like another retinue you know like yeah. another lord's bannerman with them um they do go to winterfell you know we know we've seen groups of them show up there so maybe they were just happened to be there and whoever was the lord commander said well we might as well send a 
a detachment. Yeah. But um, maybe it's because of, um, to honor, you know, what might have been already evident that he had some sort of commitment to the watch because he was already sending people there. That's true. This is in advance of that becoming problematic. So. Yeah, it, it was before his visit there, but he would, may have maybe he had indicated he was going to visit and had treated them well, et cetera. Yeah, he had already sent a bunch of uh, yeah a bunch of people up there. So and Chloe had um, left us a note here from last time that said that we have to make we have to keep our perspective on the Night's Watch, which we did that a little bit with talking about how many people were in it, but also it's been at this point in time it's been. The wall. When we're introduced to the wall at the beginning of a song of ice and fire, it's there's already been people f- fleeing because they've been seeing the others. Like this, the prologue is not the first time something kind of like that had happened, and so our perspective is already the wall is un- is having. There's already a clear and present danger for them, and there isn't necessarily a current issue for them at this time. Maybe it's a time of peace. Maybe the wall's been quiet. Maybe they just have a little more leeway to send some people. Anyway, there it's it's fair to not. Uh, to, to, to point out that there could be some significant differences in the status here. Uh, oh, uh, good call by commenter Aaron Ginsberg, who mentions that the journey for all these people is so much longer because we're still not to having the King's Road yet. There is no King's Road. There's no, a lot of these other roads don't exist. So very good point. This traveling to this wedding would be a real deal for a lot of, especially the, the brothers of the Night's Watch. So, wow. Yeah, great point. Great point. That's, that's, uh, that's another thing we're used to. A Song of Ice and Fire has roads. <laughs> but <laughs> before Jerry's, uh, not so much. So so more important guests. We have the sister of the Prince of Dorne. We have the son of the Sea Lord. We have 22 magisters from Pentos. We have the Archon of Tyrosh and his daughter. And that's kind of interesting. I think that the Archon of Tyrosh is involved. It, anytime you hear the Archon of Tyrosh getting involved in Westerosi politics, of course, my head goes straight to the Blackfires. But... You know, it's more of a fact that Tyrosh is, of the free cities, one of the closest physically located to Westeros, along with Pentos and Bravos. So they have a little more commerce with their, the politics matter a little more, uh, them as a trade, you know, a trading place. But let's hear your guys' takes on um, these guests in general, in particular the Archon, but whoever else you want to comment on. I, th- I think it's also the structure of the, of the polity, which is um, Archon's if I recall correctly, serve for life. And the, um, you know, and there's one of them. Whereas like the magisters, anytime you've got a council of magisters, right, that's a little bit complicated from a sort of feudal medieval mindset to be like, okay, who's the person in charge? Who is of equal status to a king? Well, an archon is, you know, close enough, right? It's something that you can deal with. Um... And, you know, Sea Lord is in a, a similar situation. We've had uh, Sea Lords um, marry or, you know, uh, engaged to be married to royalty. <laughs> yeah. So it's sort of, <laughs> Almost you know, it's, it's an option. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of just sort of like that tension that you see a little bit in, in medieval English history of sort of do you marry the foreign princess or do you marry at home that, you know, a foreign princess is supposed to come with advantages but then you have this sort of complicated, uh, you know, European politics of like, okay, are you, you know, allying with France or are you allying with Spain or somewhere else? And are you going to get the dowry? And, you know, what does this mean to the broader, you know, uh, balance of power? Whereas, you know, and then you're always going to get some sort of like nationalist backlash 
Um, whereas, you know, if you marry a local, now you have the issue of, okay, who, who do you marry and what does that do to the internal balance of power? Well said. So, uh, Lady Gwen, you had some interesting notes on the Archon of Tyrosh popping up in quite a few places where, um, Mm -hmm. where power is an issue. (laughs) Yes. A lot of times there's a, there's a long history, it seems like, of Archons angling to marry or form these alliances with Targaryens uh, going back uh, right to this time. This Archon brings his daughter. Uh, She'll later be floated as a possible match for Jaehaerys. I think it was one of Rogar's favored choices. Uh, Alyssa didn't want the girl with the green hair. (laughs) (laughs) She wanted a nice local girl. Uh, But... Besides that, we'll see it again um, in Aegon III's cattle show. Uh, we have, of course, the Damon Blackfire and with uh, Rohan of Tyrosh. There is a uh, brother of an Archon at Danny's wedding to Drogo. Who knows yeah. what he was doing there? Just nice. an honored guest, maybe mm-hmm. scoping out Viserys, or you know, they always seem to be there. And then uh, this was a note from Chloe that um, from the Princess in the Tower, uh, there was apparently um, some an Archon's daughter who was involved in Doran's um, plans somehow around what he was doing with his kids, and um, so they were there. Oh, wasn't. Um... Wasn't Ariane going to become a uh, cupbearer? Yeah, yes, that's for the it. Archon. And that was how she was going to meet Viserys. That's how She's she was going to meet like, Viserys. Meet yeah, that's pretty so cool. So the question right. would be, what was the daughter was going to come to Westeros? Was there some plan for her? You know, were they going to marry her off to someone in Westeros? Finally, they were going to nab a prince or someone in West- <laughs> well, I'm sure they would have wanted a, a quid pro. Maybe, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, think of Quentin or so. you know, so. Um, they're there lingering around the edges all the time, it mm-hmm. seems to me, just trying to find their angle to get to get involved. So. And um, if we have uh, another thing that happens at the Golden Wedding, which I think is interesting, that I also think is super, super relevant to A Song of Ice and Fire, is this is Jaehaerys' sort of coming out to the realm. This is him. He gets to meet all these lords and ladies for the first time who before had only heard of him and they had heard good things, but you get all these quotes from lords who met him for the first time. And it reminds me of the lords meeting Rob Stark for the first time where they're kind of testing him for his youth, but they come out like, that's actually a good kid. Like, especially great John by far is the most memorable there. I mean, you having your fingers bitten off and talking about blood, you know, his meat being tough. Like you can't, he swallows up all the other anecdotes, but still there were others. <laughs> I, I, I kind of have a different historical parallel here, oh, which cool. is, um, you know, I got really strong vibes of like FDR, FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt from, uh, Jaharis and Alisane. Okay. Um, especially, you know, you if you look at the quotes from uh, people who, who met with Jaharis while he was doing the conciliating while, like, Rogar was off killing things in the forest, they're all completely opposite. Right? <laughs> they're all saying, like, you know, oh, he's very humble. Oh, he's very clever. You know, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't say much. <laughs> right? And... You know, all, all, and they're not consistent. And that really reminds me of FDR, who was uh, both a very good listener. He was, you know, someone who could get along well with people in one-on-one situations. But he had this amazing gift 
for making people think that he agreed with them without committing himself. Hmm. So that they would go away from a meeting thinking like, okay, the president's on my side. Wait a second. Did he actually say that he was going to do this? <laughs> That's pretty smart. Um, and that was an enormous like gift for him in that like if someone wanted something that he didn't want to give them, you know, he knew how to be just vague enough so that he could sort of get away, you know, step away from it later. Whereas, you know, if it was something that he really did need, then he could say, well, I've been for it all along. And then at the same time that Jaehaerys is meeting with all the lords, Alysanne is meeting with all the ladies. And this is sort of the first of her women's courts, which remind me a lot, uh, especially when we get to her one in the north, of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's um, uh, listening tours, where, I mean, obviously the situations are very different, that, you know, FDR, because, um, you know, of his polio, couldn't travel very much, or it was more difficult. So, like, Eleanor would go out touring the country and bring reports back to FDR and say, like, you need to follow up on this, or, you know, this is what people care about here. And it was, like, a sign by proxy of, like, presidential sympathy and engagement. And I feel like Alisane kind of fulfills a similar role, especially when we get to uh, the Widow's Law and uh, the Law of the First Night. Right on. Where it's like, it's not just sort of a, a ceremonial exercise, it's lobbying. Yeah, oh yeah, and it's it's also, yeah, it's... And it's um... Grassroots, almost grassroots, being championed by a member of the royalty. Uh, it's kind of like... As close yeah. as you can probably in get this, in a medieval In this setting, yeah. You have to have a, a sponsor. <laughs> There's no such thing as a true grassroots movement. In medieval times, it isn't like a, a riot or something. <laughs> um, so uh, let's take a brief detour and do uh, Parallel Lives, one somewhat relevant to this, and then we'll come back with The War of the White Cloaks, which is also... Probably quite relevant to young Griff, who's going to have to choose a Kingsguard. All right. Um, today, as always, we do usually, well, one time we only did one of these, but usually we're going to do two of these, and today is no exception. We're going to do two of these today. I'm going to start with, as always, a character from the modern series, and you will match him with a character from history. In this case, we'll go with someone who is indecisive and clever. Someone whose ill health made them look older. Uh, in one case, we have a troublesome, or actually in both cases, we have a troublesome warrior brother. In both cases, that brother was sent into exile. Nonetheless, those brothers did sometimes manage to work well together for long stretches. Both of these characters faced rebellion, and both of them fled during that rebellion to uh, a more safe location. Well, safe in their minds. Um, so we'll come back. I'll let y'all think about who that might be. Um, the uh, main character that we're talking about is Doran Martell. So who in history reminds you of that character? Who has those same traits? And when we come back with the answer, I'll expand on those comparisons and give a few other uh, comparisons as well as potential foreshadowing for what's going to happen with Doran. So let's talk a little bit about the War of the White Cloaks and then we'll come back with the answer to that one. Uh, so at the beginning of the Golden Wedding... One of the most, my favorite moments of conciliating uh, in the in the book is Jaehaerys uh, inviting Joffrey Doggett to join his Kingsguard. I just thought that was really well written, really cool, just really good. And uh, but he that leaves him with five, only 
a two. He has Giles Morgan and Joffrey Doggett. So he needs five more. And interestingly, they decide to have like a tournament of sorts at this golden wedding um, to choose via prowess. Like they're saying, oh, I want to, the, the best fighters here are going to become my Kingsguard. Which is really interesting because this is something that's come up several times. There's two schools of thought on Kingsguard. Visenya outright rejected the suggestion when Aegon, the Conqueror, said, let's have a tournament. And Visenya was like, no. We, sure, they got to be able to fight well, but more importantly is loyalty. And this is where Jaehaerys and Young Griff are, are not on the same page because Young Griff is of the mind, is more of Visenya's mind, though John Connington more shares Jaehaerys' view. So you have intelligent people on both sides of this debate. So let's start with that. Um, Lady Glenn, we'll start with you this time. Uh, weigh in on this, uh, which do you think is wiser and any other takes you have related to this? Well, I think obviously loyal, they, they crystallize the two key things that you need in a king's card. You need loyalty and you need uh, military prowess. Uh, I do think that it's tough to say which was the right answer, but I think Jaharis was very clever. And he saw that, you know, the, that what his mother was suggesting was problematic Uh Choosing someone based on a joust would be relatively pointless because knights aren't going to defend their king from horseback. And he, <laughs> oh no, he's he, riding right at the king. <laughs> Lance is out, fellas. In the throne uh, room. Uh, <laughs> so he, you know, his solution of did, saying that it was going to have to be a melee, melees or duels uh, in order to determine their actual prowess was a pretty good way of bridging that gap. I think uh, they must have relied on their own personal judgment of people at that point, too, to make sure that they were also loyal. Um, you know, I, I think it probably depends on the time and place. Um, and in some ways, like, Jaehaerys managed both, because a lot of the people who end... I mean, maybe this is he just got lucky, but a lot of the people who won the tourney were nobodies, right? Uh, William the Wasp, Pate the Woodcock, Sam Good of Sour Hill, like people who didn't have any outside uh, allegiances, owed everything to the king. And, you know, as they saw in, at Dragonstone, like they were willing to, to, you know, in the midst of a major political conflict, side with the king, uh, at all costs. Um, I mean, I guess, I don't know. So I, I had a couple of thoughts about the war of the white cloaks. One of which is I thought the rejects were kind of more interesting yeah. than the people who won. <laughs> I, agree, uh, I agree. Like the keg of ale is great. Tom, the strummer, the serpent and Scarlet. They're just a little bit more, um, flavorful. I was also, uh, this is just not just about this chapter, but in general, I was really surprised at like how little we get of Ryan Redwine in Fire and Blood Volume 1. Mm. Like, given that the guy is supposed to be one of the most, like, famous Kingsguard ever. A Lord Commander, a Hand of the King, you know, this sort of like... I said the same thing. You know, I was like, top five minor nitpicks with Fire and Blood is, why didn't Ryan Redwine get more screen time? But And yeah. and you'd think this would be a good place to, to have him come in. Yeah. Like, maybe as sort of a, a kind of... Barristan, Selmy-esque, like, you know, 
you know, too young for it, you know, tries to sneak in anyway kind of thing. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe a missed trick. But overall, it, it's like it's a very kind of capital R romantic, you know, uh, sort of set piece in what is probably the most, like, capital R romantic period of Targaryen history. Like, the period with the most pageantry, the most magnificence. It is the golden age from which, you know, the, the dance and everything that follows is kind of a Golden age for a golden wedding. Sounds about right. Looks like the looks like the chat is doing uh, having fun trying to pick out who young Griff's Kingsguard will be, and there's some good ideas. Obviously, they got Raleigh Duckfield on there. He's the first. I, I agree with the suggestion that Darkstar is a distinct possibility. Damon Sand <laughs> is a possibility. I know it seems terrible to have him on there, but I do. I could definitely yeah, see Damon it. Yeah, Damon Sand. I could yeah. see. And um, then some. They suggest a high tower, not necessarily knowing which high tower, but some kind. Yeah, a high tower. That would yeah. that would make a lot of sense. If, if we're looking for parallels, um, uh, the guy in the Golden Company, his name is Rings? or No, Chains. Chains, yeah. <laughs> uh, because one of the people who won the, the tourney was Lawrence Roxton. Uh. Rox, House Roxton's sigil is uh, these like... The manacle things or whatever? Chains. Yeah. It's oh, not, not manacles. manacles. Oh, there's they're, Chains? They're, okay. They're, they're just uh, sort of ringed, uh, sort of two strands of mm. rings that are, or, well, technically four, that are all linked well, that's together. that's a good catch. I definitely didn't see that. That's good. So, maybe that. I, I just was looking at the list of Kingsguard. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. Um, another thing that we have to bring up, which we briefly touched on uh, when we talked about some of these things a couple weeks ago as well, was the Winged Knight uh, event. They're going to choose these Winged Knights mm -hmm. for Sir Robert Aaron, and it's the same kind of thing. You've got some people that are probably that are certainly qualified um, with the sword, but who are not probably not a good idea to have behind your king. Obviously, Lynn Corbray. Lynn Corbray, yeah. golf, golf. <laughs> right. By far, the, uh, he's kind of like uh, the same example um, of, of the great John in blowing all the other possible examples out of the water with his, uh, with his blatancy there. But um, So that's yet another uh, kind of side topic that relates to this as well. And uh, I have to imagine that the Mad Mouser is going to be at least a contestant. Oh, yeah. that's I'm really curious <laughs> how that's going to go. I expect him to fail, but it can't just be a complete falling-on-his-face failure. Uh, I don't know. I, you know? Um, I mean, I think he's going to fail in his ultimate objective of kidnapping Sansa. Yeah. Um, but, like, I, I think it is... It's sort of... <sighs> All right. Uh, Chekhov's gun is not quite the right metaphor here, but like, it's it's like when you see the little guy who like, you know, it's being teed up that like, oh, he's so little, he can't really be a threat, <laughs> and like then he judo flips some enormous dude, right? It's that kind of like necessary reversal. Otherwise, why have him be there? Interesting. Right? If like, you know, yeah. scrawny scrawny guy gets you know gets his head smashed in is not a news story you know it's scrawny guy beats the bigger guy is the news that, story. i like that take also so i wonder i've been thinking about pate the woodcock and i can't i, I can't come up with a good parallel for him maybe this is as close as we get a little mm. guy that that's um, supposedly that they didn't think he really belonged but he proved himself i mean yeah. he's a proto dunk he is a proto dunk right? yes he's, he is a proto -dunk. He's, he's a proto dunk in a king's guard that had a lot of proto dunks yes <laughs> um you know because like jeffrey doggett mm. is 
kind of close. Uh, what was the other? Um, uh, oh, Sam Good of Sour Hill. <laughs> yeah. Right. Another guy that like <laughs> Sam Good is, is this guy is Barristan merged really with Dunk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's Barristan Dunk. <laughs> with a with a with a smart mouth. <laughs> I like that guy. <laughs> um. So let's see here. Uh, yeah, a couple. You mentioned Tom the Strummer. Uh, that's a good one. He sings ribald songs aimed at his opponent, which is uh, a nice parallel to Tom O'Sevens, who doesn't sing about his opponent so much as just Ed Muir and a few other people. But that's uh, that's close enough. Uh, and Lady Gwen, you you said uh, you, you like the keg of ale. <laughs> I like the keg of ale, and it, yeah, just he reminded me of Dantos. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Soft spot for Sardanto. So. I, I like that. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. And also a little bit of the um, oh, what was his name? The guy who fought for Magor, who like supposedly they cut him open and he was full of pies. Oh yeah. Uh, what was that guy name? Um, was it Guy Lawson? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Guy the Glutton. Uh, yeah. Right. Guy the Glutton. <laughs> yeah. Right. So just sort of a, a little bit of a like folk history of, of uh-huh. food related nights. <laughs> food nights yes we need yep. we should have the order of the food nights that's what we need <laughs> <laughs> so it's also mentioned here uh that Jaharis had what they are saying is the best king's guard of all time or at least as good as the best king's guard of all time which is neat to compare to Ares, who had a really epic king's guard that also of course since this is a, a, a conversation wrapped up in tower of joy themes that obviously relates with with them being so loyal to Rhaegar and dying uh hard um as it were because they're good fighters we have did you uh did you guys have any comments on the comparison between the, these two king's guards or is that just kind of a, a uh thing? yeah i mean the um i'm trying to remember the i i was getting my tourneys a little bit mixed up as i was reading this and the the one that kind of um, you know interesting parallels is the tourney at which Ryan Redwine um, it was the like fiftieth anniversary one, mm. um, and it was supposed to be like the greatest tourney ever, and that's sort of a good parallel for the tourney of Hall, okay. which is yeah. Also supposed to be one of the biggest ones ever. That makes sense. What the hell was it? Um, I can't remember what that one was called either. Uh, yeah, it was. Ah, it was it was um, him and Clement Crabbe. Oh yes. Thirty lances against each other. Um, Which I think probably needs. I, 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 this is just now occurring to me. There's probably a parallel to uh, Dick Crabbe stories in there somewhere um, about oh boy. all those. I'll have to look that up later. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably something there. And they're yeah. also on, like, fairly, you know, uh, significant dates, right? This is the 50th year of King Jaehaerys' reign. Yeah. Um, you know, the tourney of, of Harrenhal was... Uh, tourney of Harrenhal, was that also an anniversary one, or am I misremembering? Um. No, I think I'm misremembering there. Okay, uh, we have another question here um, from Thomas Pappas, uh, Hema Hellman. Thready, he says, really excited to hear you all discuss the parallels between the war for the White Cloaks and current events characters. The tur- tournament itself seems very similar to Renly's Rainbow Guard selection, which we haven't mentioned yet, but that is a good a good parallel for sure. John Kill Dark parallels Brienne of Tarth, which we did refer to that two episodes ago. Uh, but he adds to that, he says, especially being asked to personally guard Sansa after the attack at John Kill's pool, and then, oh, I'm sorry, actually, he doesn't add to that. Someone else added to that in a different question that I'm com- has coming later. I got these crossed up. Anyway, 
Uh, I do have something else to say about that later. But yeah, that is very true. And yeah, with the Rainbow Guard, that's a good that's a good parallel. It is um, the Rainbow Guard was more of a who's the best fighter? You get to be in my King's Guard. Rainbow Guard, as he mm-hmm. called it. Uh, so he, I guess, Renly was of the best fighters um, school of thought because, but Renly also seems like the kind of guy that just was very trusting, you know. <laughs> it's also very much about you know the the pageantry and yeah. the show and you know that's true. As long as they're all and you know, flashy. and also sort of seeing what he could get from them, right? Mm-hmm. His whole thing about why he he you know, uh, accepts Brienne's request as he says, well, the only thing she wants from me is, is to die in my service. So mm-hmm. that's okay by me. Yeah. So he got, he got both the best fighter and the most loyal. And the loyalty. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's also a little bit of getting lucky there. Like Harris did maybe. <laughs> um, okay. So let's, uh, we can move on here. Let me give the answer to our parallel lives uh, question. The answer is, Aenys Targaryen. Aenys also was indecisive and clever. His ill health also made him look older. Uh, when he, this, it turned bad for him, particularly when he learned that his son and daughter were besieged in Craycall. He had a real collapse at that point, which I'm wary for what's going to happen to Doran Martell when he learns what happened to Quentin. I don't think it's gonna, he's going to take it lightly. He's already in bad health, so that's a problem. Uh, I mentioned that they both faced rebellion and fled. Aenys fled to Dragonstone. Doran, Doran's rebellion wasn't armed rebellion. It was just people y- yelling in the streets, uh, upset over the Red Viper's death. And he was worried it would turn into real rebellion. And that's why he seized the Sand Snakes. So he, but he ran off to the Water Gardens, uh, in a sense. Um, now, so here's where a little foreshadowing comes in. Because if we look at what happened to Aenys, we might get a sense of what's going to happen to Doran. Um... When Aenys died, uh, his, instead of the throne passing to his kids, it went to his brother. Now, I don't think that... Obviously, his brother is dead, so Oberyn's not going to take over. But Oberyn's kids might take over. The Sand Snakes, with potentially Darkstar uh, on their side, has been a long-running theory that I certainly think has a lot of validity to it. And, of course, it could also lead to Doran's death potentially at the hands of his own family, which is maybe what happened to Aenys. We don't know. The fact that Visenya was taking care of him and Visenya wanted her own son to, well, yeah, you know where that's going. The incentive was pretty clear for Visenya. So, Yeah, I was going to say, uh, Dorne should be very careful of any offers of medical assistance from the Sands. And we already had that foreshadowed, right? When his maester mm. checks him to see if any little yeah, yeah. cuts or when he touched, uh, yeah. was it Tyene? Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. let's 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 let you guys weigh in on um, potential for Doran. Mostly the foreshadowing aspects of this, but if you have other things you want to say about Aenys and Doran Martell, feel free. Um, Lady Gwen, go ahead. Yeah. No. I mean, I think that uh, the foreshadowing aspect could certainly be a thing. I'm I'm concerned about the balance of power down there with the, the Oberyn's daughters in that situation. So. I don't really have anything else to add. It's just that's definitely a thing that I'm keeping my eyes on. Hotop in big trouble, you think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. What about you, Stephen? Yeah. What do you What do you think about all this? Um, I don't know. It it it's a little tricky to me because um, it it depends on how the situation with Aegon plays out 
in relation to Doran's plot. Because, like, in some ways, he is the very manifestation of what Doran wants. Like, one situation where I could see this happening is, like, we already know from the, the advanced chapters that, like, Doran is very suspicious. And part of the difficulty for him might be that, like, if he backs out now, right? Let's say Arian goes ahead and commits herself. If he backs out now, it's very hard to make the argument, right? You know, that this guy is, is like, you know, because you think the, the sort of the romantic nationalistic side of it is like, this is the murdered half Martell prince come back from the dead. And you're going to say no after your daughter says yes. <laughs> um, you know, I could see claims that, you know, he's a, he's a traitor or, you know, what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's a little bit confusing because, you know, Obara is like off, like she's nowhere near Sunstone. Um, you know, several of the sand snakes are like headed up to King's Landing. Um, yeah, so they're going to take they're a, they're supposed to take a job in a regime that is about to be overthrown potentially. So yeah, it's really, it yeah. is kind of, there's a lot of forks in the road well, it, here. Yeah. It, it, it's more than just like, you don't see them gathering for a coup attempt. Yeah. Uh, so like if it happens, like I got to feel like it's more of a sort of like unexpected lone gunman thing than like a, a concerted coup. Okay. Yeah. I can see that. That makes sense to me. Um, Let's see here. Uh, let us... Oh, actually, one more parallel I want to throw out. So you can see another mention here that something they have in common, Aenys and Doran, is just kind of being a little slow with their plans, right? Like being maybe too... Pay like some people think of Doran as patient, but I think the fandom over time has sort of turned on him and like, that wasn't patience. <laughs> that was... I mean, it was sort... It was also... It, it was patience and other things. It was. It was dallying it was maybe too slow you know it was patience is a good thing but that that there's patience and then there's missing your chance and uh there's an argument that maybe dora never had a chance but there's also an argument that he had a chance and let it sl slip by so anyway that's uh that's a whole nother topic well let's um let's it's about we're at the about the halfway point so we're uh, i think we're doing pretty well on time i think we're going to get to cover everything we set out to cover but again i won't promise <laughs> <laughs> a couple of super chats these are uh, slightly off topic but that's all good we'll answer them we have from fred targaryen's uncle daddy <laughs> great name all hail sarah targaryen hose before bros okay now that's the take i didn't expect to see not the hose before bros but all hail sarah targaryen cuz sarah Hmm. Not a not a good kid. <laughs> not a good kid. There was a there's a I tweeted for fun the other day uh, an out of context quote from Fire and Blood, which was dot dot dot. They had never seen a child who sucked so hard, which is just wonderful out of context because you can throw that at Joffrey or Sweet Robin or <laughs> I don't know Ollie if you really are feeling spicy. But Sarah does. Could, you could you could throw that one at Sarah too. That is a child who sucked pretty hard. <laughs> yep. And Marvin Martin, uh, Marvin the Martian, follows that up with, speaking of Sarah, Daddy gave her every pet she asked for. Why didn't Sarah ask for a dragon hatchling? Would have been smart in retrospect. Yeah, you know, that is a little a little puzzling because she ran off to try to grab a dragon after she was punished. And yeah, why didn't, why didn't she have one before? She was way past the age where they normally have dragons and she, being the kind of person she was, 
I don't know. I I don't honestly don't have a good answer for that. I don't know why she didn't. Do you, do you guys have any takes on that, or is it maybe just a? Does it not make sense to you either? It kind of doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, this was something uh, I was talking with Good Queen Alley about that, like the the whole tradition of Targaryens having uh, an egg in their cradle or being bonded with a hatchling seems very hit or miss in the Jaharian period, which is strange because this is supposedly the period in which they have the most dragons. Yeah. So, you know, you got to get these things paired off. Otherwise they start running wild. Like <laughs> what was the plan here? Exactly? Or someone hitches a ride to, to Valyria. <laughs> you never know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these things. Uh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, I guess. And it was a, to be, to be nice, to charitable, to Jaharis and Alisand, they were kind of, uh, they were trotting on untrod ground. Like, what are we? What are they supposed to do with all these dragons? Like, what is? It's not like a policy that they necessarily could fall back on, pre-existing to their time. Like, well, let's just do what Aegon did. Well, what did Aegon do? He he probably didn't have a. Some of this stuff is kind of not explained. Like, we have these dragon keepers and these official dudes on Dragonstone who kind of watch it over, but we're not given a whole lot of logistics on that. It's just we're told it exists, but there's not a lot of mechanism uh explained which is fine we didn't we didn't necessarily need that it would have been cool but you know it's not yeah. a, it's not a big loss it, they had a lot of kids too a lot more kids than anyone else previous to them that and is Sarah also was a good point pretty far down the line of of kids so who knows yeah. i think george just didn't want her to have a track yes <laughs> that would have complicated the story i also think that's why he had so many of those kids die off because boy like the dynasty would have like, just been so hard to uh, write if, hell do if... i do with all these <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, Jairus and Alsan, y'all are going to be tragic figures by the end because these kids got to die. <laughs> They're all going to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, a little uh, mid-roll action real quick, and then we'll get back to it. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about Rogar, and then we'll talk about the actual Tower of Joy, uh, proto-Tower of Joy event itself. So, let's see. Let's give thanks to our Blood Rider patrons. That's Vorsaki, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Arak with the Dragonbone Hilt. Kohal Koei, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a Dragonbone Bow. And Kokabo the Tamer, wielder of the Wildfire Whip, Gehenna. And also, thanks to our um, Sellsword captains. That would include Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to Long Lives, Quick Deaths, Cold Beer, and Warm Women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, captain of the Red Tide, Resistance is Futile. Kyron Kalsbane, Captain of the Stone Shields, the Torrent Breaks Upon the Stone. Hamah Helmet, Captain of the Whispering Children, Dead Men Tell No Secrets. Shepard, the Shepherd of Essos, All Men Are Sheep Before the Shepherd, Heir to the Whispering Children. Lady Lajara Dajo, the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep, Arboreal Point, Captain of the All-Female Wailing Widows, Women and Children First. Cody the Crimson is Bastard of Bracken, Captain of the Red Waste Exiles and Recruiter of the Free Folk. Cameron, the Hammer of Hornwood, is captain of the English Lions with the motto, Honor is the Reward of Virtue. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune, captain of the Shadow Wolves. Our steel is cold, our vengeance colder. Black Alex Sand, the Bastard of Spears, leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. And last but not least, Al Iskander of Yee-T, captain of the Blazing Sabres. Do not go gently into this long night. I had a little fun with the patron names over the weekend. I got a, a wild hair and decided to read every patron name at the end of the Gagasis bonus episode. It took 25 minutes. <laughs> there's, about, there's several hundred names I read. Some of them are very long. So, and then I said to myself, oh, now I have to go back and edit that. Damn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, but it was fun. It was fun to read all those names out loud. So 
anyone who gets the, the Gagasos episode, I apologize if you were hoping the, actual, the, the last 20 minutes was more content, but it's really just me reading all those names. So I know a lot of you like hearing me read those names. So hopefully uh, you particularly like this. But let's go ahead. Let's move on. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if you are, I see people commenting about Gagasos. Yeah, it's going to be, Gagasos will be up for all patrons uh, by by next week. So it's it's following the normal pattern of, Seven day advance, then five day advance, then two day advance. So we have, yeah, our Patreon's a little complicated sometimes, <laughs> but but it does the job. Okay, um, yeah, let's let's uh, get back to it. Um, thanks to Taryn the Black, super chat at the gym, listening. Keep up the great work. I love uh, that people get to do chores and exercise while hanging out with us. It's one of the great things about podcast and audio entertainment. Um, getting to do getting your chores and and things out of the way, getting tedious things uh, taken care of while having something to entertain you. It's uh, what, one of the things that got me into podcasting. It's what I um, love about podcasting when I was just a listener myself. Okay. Rogar Baratheon. Great guy. <laughs> not. <laughs> interesting guy. No, he's not. He's, he's an interesting person. I have, I've, had, I've struggled to come up with parallels for him. I don't think there's great ones. Uh, he's a mishmash of different characters. There's a little bit of Tywin in him. A little bit of Mace Tyrell. So we don't have to try to parallel life every character. So I, we, we don't have to force this. No small amount of Robert. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Robert, yeah, of course, being a Baratheon, he's got the bluster and the, the I'll fight anybody type attitude, the never backing down attitude. So, yeah, there's a lot of Robert in him for sure. But what? Did, but do you guys see any any other parallels there with him? Um, was I maybe missing something or, or is that did you kind of see him similarly? Yeah, similar. Definitely. Okay, cool. Bit of Robert. A, a good thing to keep in mind is that this all these great houses probably had more pride at this point in time than they maybe do now, with some exceptions because some of the great houses have since risen even higher than they were. But at this time, they're all 50, 60 years removed from being independent and having been independent and in charge of their own kingdom for huge amounts of time, like uncountable amounts of time. So... It's mentioned that Rogar is really proud. He's grandson of Oris Baratheon and the last Storm King, which is, that's some good blood, you know, by Westerosi standards, no doubt. Um, And his family is big. He's himself big. He marries Alyssa. The regent marrying the Hand is kind of a problem, isn't it? That can cause some uh, issues. What do you guys think about that? Um, And uh, and are there any similar situations that you can kind of compare this to? Real world or uh, Westeros? So the parallel that stuck out to me, um, just sort of running through uh, most of the story of Rogar, is the way that uh, Edward the uh, Third dealt with his mother Isabella and Roger Mortimer. And Rogar and Roger are are fairly close in that you know they were uh, romantically linked, which sort of embarrassed the king because. Um, you know, of what happened to his father, although um, those situations are sort of somewhat uh, similar, but but not completely, because Isabella overthrew uh, Edward II, and uh, Alyssa did not overthrow her own husband. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of the sort of this slightly Freudian undertone, of the conflict between him and, uh, excuse me, between Jaehaerys and, and Rogar in that, like, he's very much seeing him as like 
you know, you're not my real dad. <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, also that sort of like overweening pride that like the Mortimers were this, I mean, incre- astoundingly wealthy family um, to the point where um, like they were a major reason why the Yorkists like the House of York became a thing is that they had an inheritance from the Mortimers. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So they yeah. provided most of the money and the land. And we know and George like, knows all this stuff. This is absolutely in his uh, his own like hobbyist wheelhouse of stuff he'd like to read about. His, so yeah, some of his major influences. Jaehaerys becomes a king in his minority, just like Edward the Third. Oh. And I wonder. Um, originally, didn't he refer to Rogar as Robar? He did. He decided he to change it. his mind. Yeah, he was like, he, just, he, he, so, he flip-flopped and then went back and was like, yeah, Rogar's yeah. better. I hadn't really thought about it in light of that. And so that's, I, yeah, because it's Roger Mortimer, right? Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. very yeah. good. Very good catch. Yeah, yeah that's, that seems like almost a slam dunk. And uh, also, Roger Mortimer uh, didn't end out very well <laughs> when Edward III <laughs> came to power, although... You know, uh, Rogar gets a lot luckier mm-hmm. than than uh, more. Yeah, there's there's more conciliation in the uh, Westeros version. <laughs> so a lot a lot less gallows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rogar did not hang. He got to die of old age. Uh, so Rogar, um, he is also one of the most important figures in sort of not maybe not establishing male primogeniture, but sort of. Well, yeah, I guess establishing sort of cementing it. It was never it wasn't fully cemented because of him, but. He really pushed it, and before him, uh, it, it was kind of a, it was kind of dodged because it should have gone. It could have gone to that. Reyna was technically the eldest child of Aenys, who was the king, but Reyna married Aegon, Aegon the Uncrowned. So they kind of dodged the issue by just having the royal couple be the two oldest. So it wasn't really either one wasn't really passed over. They're both going to be king and queen. But then Magor did his thing, and and they didn't get to rule. So then. We have, so they kind of got to avoid that issue by Megor taking over. Now it came back because they're like, hey, well, why isn't Reyna queen? Uh, and Rogar's like, a woman? Rogar, this kind of thing where Rogar is just constantly like, a woman, a woman. He calls people, refers to them by that name. And yeah, he's, uh, he's very much on the Andal side of things, not the Valyrian side of things, it seems, from his heritage um, and the, 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 you know, uh, whatever, just the male side of things. And he says, this is not Dorne and Reyna is not Nymeria. I think that's a pretty telling quote. <laughs> and and I think the, the other thing is that, you know, if, if it really had come down to a political struggle between them, like, you know, they're both dragon riders, okay. Uh, but, like, Jaehaerys is just so much better at politics. <laughs> yeah. And the, the thing that, like, got to me with Reyna is that, like, initially she... She really didn't want it, or at least didn't seem to be making any moves to like, cause she had, um, you know, the sort of the supporters of, you know, Prince Aegon's rebellion kind of close to her. She had a kind of a following, but she didn't really follow up with them. She just sort of, uh, hung out. And I mean, honestly, I think her biggest mistake, politically speaking, was marrying a second son of the Farmans. Mm, yeah. Like, if you want to make an issue of your claim, you know, that is the wrong move, and it delayed any claim rather significantly. She's really, she's kind of like, um, 
it's the it's the thing that Stannis wrestled with in his head that he finally got over. He does he was thinking of his rights before his duty, and eventually he got you know got straight on that. But Reyna, she was very much about her rights, and you're right. Like she didn't even she was she was a uh, called up her rights on things that she didn't even necessarily want. <laughs> she was just kind of <laughs> yeah. It, it's I wonder whether it, instead of like rights versus duties, it's like rights versus I don't know trauma in yeah. a way like. It seemed like she had two things that she she wanted simultaneously. She wanted the things that she had been had been taken away from her, but she also wanted to retreat. Yes. Like, you know, she wanted to to be with her her favorites. She wanted to be in a place that she had good mental associations with. Um but those two things are in competition. Yeah. All right, the more you do one, the less you can do the other. And I don't think she ever really made up her mind in time as to which way. Yeah, to go. she's a really interesting character, and we're going to focus on her fully in another episode. So let's not let's not go too deep on the Reina rabbit hole here. But it's really it re- relates really strongly to Rogar because Reina hated Rogar, it seems, and she has plenty of good reasons to. Some of the things she accused him of, you know, were maybe a little unfair, but she had plenty of fair complaints about his behavior. Many fair complaints about his behavior, and. Uh, he and 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 of course partly because Rogar is a hypocrite about, about a lot of things. And I, Lady Gwen, right. you've got some notes here, so let's uh, let's hear from you here for a minute. Oh yeah, the, I mean number one, file this under hypocrisy. He does not think Reyna should inherit, and yet in very short order we'll see him when it suits him looking to Reyna's claim and her daughters when when he starts to think maybe Jaharis isn't the way to go because Jaharis is challenging his own power. So. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's um it's very and it's it's not like he waited years for that change of heart. It's kind of mm-hmm. follows right quickly on. So yeah. yeah. I have to say I lost a lot of respect uh between for him between World of Ice and Fire and Fire. Yeah, he seemed okay mm-hmm. back then. Uh, cause he, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cuz he just seems well, just less clever and sort of uh directed at his goals like okay, you know, not getting to marry Jaharis and Alice, you know, uh, Alice in the way he wanted, that's a setback. But like, okay, you've still got relatives around. They're going to have kids. Why not work something out down the... Like, it, what, what astonishes me is he just, he goes from like zero to rebellion yeah. in nothing <laughs> flat. Yeah, right. And, and doesn't even take the time to like, a, a, as I usually say, like you, you pre-meeting the meeting. Right, you don't just sort of say like I'm gonna rebel against the king. Who's with me? And they're like nobody. You take each person <laughs> aside ahead of time and sound them out in high, vague hypotheticals. Yeah. yeah, and then you decide like, are you gonna go ahead with this? And it's just like, I don't know. His whole thing kind of ends with such a, a whimper, not yeah. a bang. That's why the mace was... part, the mace thing comes up for me. That's why because he's yeah. like he's full of hot air. He talks about how he would have fought Magor, but would he have really? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it made me kind of wonder, like, just, you know, why not have him die fighting the Vulcan? Yeah, like, I, I kind of wanted know, that, too. S- send him off in, like, you know, and end his story, but instead it just kind of, like, keeps going. He's, he's you know, he's still there. He's not dead yet. Yeah. Um, and especially, like, you know, I don't know if you want to get into this, but, like, the way that that uh, Alyssa's story ends is just kind of, ugh. Yeah. Really kind of yeah. grim and, like... This is, you know, something uh, since we touched on the the golden wedding, like I, I don't feel that Alyssa's character is particularly consistent 
in Fire and Blood. It, 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 I wish it had been a little more fleshed out. Like, on the one hand, we're told that, like, she just wants to be loved, and that was her, you know, sort of uh, Viserys-like yeah. kind of quality. But I'm like, this is the same woman who wanted to, like, purge and execute all of Magor's followers. <laughs> that doesn't seem like the same person to yeah. me. Right. And, and likewise, like, when she's you know, dies through childbirth. I was sort of thinking in my head, like, okay, but she's an intelligent, you know, experienced woman. She knows that Tansy T exists. Like, why not use and it? And Rogar doesn't even have to find you know? out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like, On you know, why sly, is it that, yeah. that sort of birth control is, like, simultaneously there but not there <laughs> yeah. as an element of world building? That's a good point. I, I, I didn't think of the, her, the that option for her. That's a very good point. Um, and, uh, so Lady Gwen, you have some notes here on Alyssa as well. Um, as, as, as far as she understood Jahara, her, her, her children, she understood what they would do, but it's maybe fair, uh, in retro. Now we know it worked out, but at the time it may have been fair for Rogar and Alyssa, et cetera, to be worried about Jaharis and Alsan getting married because of the, the shadow of the faith hanging over them and the, mm-hmm. the way that people believe at that time. Absolutely. And she's she's got this memory of what happened with Aegon and Reyna. And in spite of the fact that she kind of sees the inevitability of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, uh, she's she's just terrified of, of history repeating itself. So she gets on board with this planning marriage alliances separately for the for both the children uh, behind their backs uh, because because her heart's in the right place she wants to prevent this you know so you know i don't fault her for that as as a mother she thinks she's doing the right thing for her kids so yeah and she has the right she handles it much better than rogar we'll get to we'll we'll, uh you know we're jumping ahead a little bit here but rogar's problem was that when everything was against him when justice was no longer on his side he still persisted Partly, it seems because of pride. Like his pride and his sense of justice yeah. were aligned. And when the just part of the justice part fell off, he didn't really realize that he kind of kept going. He's a guy that doesn't like doesn't know how to give up. Alyssa, <laughs> as we'll see, knew when to throw in the towel. <laughs> She's like, wait, if we don't stop this, it's going to become bloody. So let's uh, let's explore this here. We have what uh, a couple different names for this: Tower of Joy 1.0, the new old Tower of Joy, the Proto Tower of Joy, or the Pro Tower of Joy. Eh, there's a lot of good names for it here. <laughs> um, and a few people, when I posted this name, were wondering what on earth I was talking about. But I think as we go through this section, you'll see that wow, there are a lot of Tower of Joy parallels to Jairus and Alisan running off to get married. Uh, with kind of with, I, I, I hesitate to say without permission because, well, they're the king and the queen, but sort of they didn't have permission. That's kind mm-hmm. of a, uh, a thorny issue, but we'll get into that. Um, so let's start with some of the basic similarities. Jaehaerys is Kingsguard being super loyal to him instead of to the regent, which is a major contrast to what we'll see later with Aegon Third, where the regent is kind of actively against the king instead of just kind of arguing with him. Uh, Aegon III is almost assassinated, where Rogar never goes that far. Uh, <laughs> and that's similar with Rhaegar and Ares with regards to the, the three at the Tower of Joy. Um, now, there's, of course, some major differences, but um, which we should 
we'll, we will point out as well. But there's also some uh, major similarities. Here's one major difference here, Lady Gwen, that you had pointed out. Yeah, the, uh, the major difference is that Jaharis, you could say, has full control over this Kingsguard. He's got all seven, and there's no conflict for them. There's there's not going to be somebody else in the background giving them a conflicting order, unlike Rhaegar, who had his three at the Tower of Joy. But, you know, it's debatable whether the king could have tried to call them back and, you know, what would what then would have happened? What would their conflict have been? Yeah, like with Aegon the Third, when the Kingsguard were kind of... Uh, not following the king's orders. Yeah. on the third's like, get the heck out of here. And the king's guard's like, no, <laughs> we're coming for you. <laughs> so it's very, yeah, it's quite different. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, um, and of course, another major difference is, is, is there's no polygamy at issue here. It's mm-hmm. not Jairus and Alisanne aren't trying to get married twice, which is the issue with, potential issue with Rhaegar. But it's still the same issue as far as how it's viewed by the religion, the, the dominant religion, uh, the faith hate incest pretty much as much as they hate polygamy. They've learned to accept incest sort of in current times. Uh, and we don't really have polygamy in current times, so we don't really know what they think of it. Probably not good. They probably aren't like, okay, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, especially with the high sparrow just now coming in charge, who is not likely to be um, yeah, soft on such issues, shall we say? Mm-hmm. So, uh, start with here, uh, Stephen. Let's get your takes on some of the, these the basic, just uh, ar- overarching similarities between Jairus and Alisanne's uh, standoff and uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna. Um, I think, I mean, one thing that's kind of clear from a sort of again a metatextual standpoint is this very much about romanticism, yeah. right? Uh, the Tower of Joy is sort of the the bittersweet, slightly gothic side of it. Right, where it's like it all ends in tragedy and you know, the the roses fade and you know uh you know, all is lost. Whereas, you know, this is like the shining example, right? This is like, oh, it all works out, right? You know, knights do what they're supposed to and no one dies, and the people who are in love actually get to marry and like people aren't as upset with them as we thought they were going to be and you know Yay. No, like, no wonder the song became so popular. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I sort of see them as, like, uh, mirror opposites. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, in some ways, the Tower of Joy is what might have happened if it had come to swords yes. at Dragonstone. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, as I've sort of said before with uh, reference to, like, uh, Ned's attempted coup in the throne room, like, when you have a lot of powerful people and swords in close quarters... Anything can happen. It can all go wrong very, very badly. And now it's like, oh, we have no king because someone accidentally stabbed him. (laughs) And the hand's dead. And now what are we going to do? You know, it's like... And now people want revenge. It's not necessarily... It it all goes for one side or the other. Like, it it can wind up like a, you know... (laughs) Like the aftermath of a shootout in a gangster movie where it's like, oh, everyone's dead. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So... Uh, Lady Gwyn, um, Alyssa says when she finds out, okay, so well, actually let me back up just a little bit. Jaehaerys and Alysanne go off to, in secret, after Alysanne goes to, approaches Jaehaerys and says, hey, they're going to try to marry me off to, I've forgotten to who, but they, she, and Jaehaerys says, who's that? The Baratheon. Oh yeah, the Baratheon uh, sister, or uh, son of, his brother, one of his brothers, yeah. Um, Ronald or Garen, one of those guys, or Boris, yeah, mm-hmm. Orin, ah, Boris, one of those guys. Orin, Orton. <laughs> it, it doesn't happen, so it's not super important. Um, and 
Uh, Jairus says, oh, well, clearly, if they're going to marry you off, they're going to marry me off. So let's uh, so that he orders his king's guard to to leave with him. They, they fly not with him. They go on their own. And, the, and Jairus and Alsan fly to Dragonstone, uh, something that Rhaegar and Lyanna did not have an option to do. <laughs> Um, and they find out, uh, the court finds out Alyssa and Rogar get some men together and confront them. And there's kind of a standoff uh, where they're facing each other and kind of arguing about this whole issue. And Alyssa says, you foolish children, you know not what you've done. And boy, does that sound like Liana and Rhaegar. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that is absolutely like, what, what have you done? You've caused this, this rift, etc. So Lady Gwen, uh, tell us uh, what you think about all that. Yeah, I mean, obviously the fear is that they've brought a whole new episode of violence and bloodshed on the realm. Uh, obviously, that is the the thought around Rhaegar and Lyanna. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Jaehaerys, as far as the parallel goes, that the Jaehaerys and Alysanne parallel is very close on the timeline to the two best-known examples of Targaryen polygamy. So... In light of what happens after and how this situation is solved, I think that's a significant precedent. I think we'll see that... I think you alluded to this a few minutes ago, that polygamy, incest, I think, kind of, at this point, are probably equally evil for the faith. You know, it seems to have changed a little bit over the generations. Uh, but yeah, they still I, sort of tolerate I, the Targaryens do it, even though they do it, seem to have, to have backed off on doing it as often. But Jamie mm-hmm. and Cersei talk about it and they're like uh-uh it's yeah. people they, they're they're clear well J- jamie is wants to do it but s- despite what people will think but cersei's like are you crazy <laughs> even cersei's like for no. us. yeah <laughs> i will say it it gives more uh grounding to the idea of like the doctrine of exceptions yes mm-hmm. yes which yeah. is like if the way that the faith got its head around the whole thing was saying okay this one family gets to do it and no one else then you can sort of say, well, like, oh, well, then it's completely nuts for, you know, Jamie to just say, like, well, the Targs did it, so can we. Because no one's going to agree to that. <laughs> yeah. like, right. Well, obviously you're not. Yeah, we've made this exception for just for them. You're not them. I mean, that one but, example in the book, right, where the one hedge knight says to that one Septon, hey, can I, you know, are you telling me I can go bang my sister? And he's like... Well, if you can go ride a dragon, then I'll marry you myself. You know, marry themselves. It's kind of that's kind of like Jamie there. Like, mm-hmm. hey, can I go bang my sister? And the Septon's like, well, can you ride a dragon? <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and marry Cersei if you can ride a dragon. Uh, so show me your dragon. Yeah, yeah. show me the dragon. <laughs> <laughs> um. So uh, another there's the logistics behind this as well. Um, with with it was fairly easy for Jaehaerys and Alysanne to get married because they had a loyal old Septon who had lived on Dragonstone the whole time. They knew him personally. He was kind of a mild-mannered guy. And again, this is the king, not the prince. So they, you know, there's there's no one that is like, oh, well, if the king isn't okay with this, I could be executed. No, that's, this is the king. So you're probably fine. But with Rhaegar and Lyanna, who married them? Who did this ceremony? That's potentially another witness to the event uh we have and that is by itself is a huge topic um yeah let's just hope it, it's handled a little bit more gracefully than <laughs> yes i agree i definitely hope it's done better than on tv um but tv at least raised a few interesting questions uh 
And one of the questions it raises, as well as the whole point of this Tower of Joy episode in Fire and Blood, is that George, yeah, George has told us about the Tower of Joy already, but it's barely fleshed out uh, in terms of the casual reader and in terms of any sort of resolution. Tower of Joy is coming back in one way or another, either Bran or Howland Reed or Willa the the wet nurse or somebody, uh, Shara Dane, I don't know. There's people out there who know and they haven't weighed in yet and they're gonna. And that's why George has to work all this out because he's still, it's still to come in the series. Even though he's got these ideas, they haven't been fully fleshed out. So I think that this episode with Harris and Alisanne, like a lot of Fire and Blood, is him working out these ideas uh, for the main series. Um, one of the big things that George is, is weighing in on here is the... Uh, the, the aspect of there being witnesses to this marriage, which is, uh, you know, for Rhaegar and Lana, there's less. Ashea has some art here she's going to put up. Uh, this is from Fire and Blood by Doug Wheatley. And it's a pretty cool shot. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about the, the, uh, that aspect of this, the aspect of witnesses and how that might play out in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, it, it's going to be very hard to undo a marriage that's been witnessed by so many people, even though you know, uh, consummation notwithstanding, uh, say as soon as Jaharis, in this case, chooses to let people know, um, pretty much the cat's out of the bag and it's going to be very difficult. And, uh, you know, Rogar and Alyssa are keenly aware of that fact. Yeah, it's interesting that Rogar even tries. He tries to keep the whole marriage a secret, but... I love when he <laughs> when he tried to stop the, the old Septon from sending the ravens to, <laughs> yeah, to, to to old town and you know he's just trying to i could picture him running around like, no sh no don't tell anyone you know? <laughs> yeah that that was the part that like really again losing respect for for rogar is like how did you think word's not gonna get yeah. out and like even if no word gets out people are gonna notice that the king's not around <laughs> yeah, where's you the know, king by the this way is a, did, this right. is a political structure in which everything is about the physical proximity to the body of the king <laughs> if the king ain't there like you could only say he's on vacation for so long like before people like i'm really surprised that like we didn't get more people saying like rogar's killed the king <laughs> because he wants to like replace him with his own child with Alyssa or some like conspiracy theory like that um so i'm not exactly sure how the whole cover-up thing was ever really going to pan out. But it's interesting as a parallel to the Tower of Joy being this secret uh, thing that happened with Rhaegar and Lyanna. So yeah. that at least we can... Yeah, I mean, I definitely I definitely think that, like, you know, if there was a Septon involved, then, you know, the only option is going to be, like, some local dude, you know, a little bit more like Tyrion and Taisha, <laughs> not the High Septon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's quite possible it's actually somebody at... Um, the Isle of Faces. Ooh, that would be cool. Like, because there's been this whole thing about, like, marriage in front of the old gods and marriage in front of the new gods and to what extent one views the other is as legitimate and binding. I mean, this has come up in relation to Sansa. Um, you know, it's... It's um, um, it's definitely a possibility with Rhaegar and Lyanna as I well. I think Chloe had a great note she left us here uh, that says that the dragons are the closest things to godlike creatures in, in Westeros or in Planetos right now, uh, other than potential actual gods. Uh, and so, in a sense, Dragonstone 
is roughly a parallel to the Isle of Faces for Rhaegar and Lyanna. It's the closest thing we have, anyway. Um, that's pretty cool. I mean, it's definitely a, a magical location. Yeah. It's one of the, um, uh, it, it uh, shoot, it like because it's volcanic. It's connected to the like the. What is the thing that Melisandre calls them? Hinges, the, like, hinges of the world or whatever. Well, but also like that she, you know, Winterfell because it's on hot springs, right? It's connected to these fires under the ground, which make it connected to fire magic and, um, Melisandre, you know, whereas, yeah. Whereas, <laughs> you know, the Isle of Faces is very much like that's earth magic and, you know, it's the children of the forest and it's the the heart trees and, um, you know, green seers and the green men and all that stuff. One of the other really important aspects of having witnesses to the wedding is that it reminds us again that to Tower of Joy, there were more people. Ned just remembers the seven and the three and Liana, but we, that's almost certainly not the case. Even TV showed that there were some other people hanging around. And that's obviously, almost certainly, 99.9% accurate. Not necessarily the exact people. Well, and but... it's, it's, there, it's, it's there in the books, too. Because oh, yeah. when they. Ned talks about... They. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, he uses the plural to describe being pulled mm. away. And, you know... You're right. <clears throat> I, I think there's certain they that we can guess, right? Wyla, yep. probably. Because, you know, a wet nurse might also be a yep, midwife. Yep. Maybe a squire, even maybe probably, probably not, but maybe well servants, yeah. right? These are all these are all nobles. They're they're not gonna hang out in some tower in the middle of nowhere, you know, because none of them know how to cook. None of them know how. To a clean. knight can't even put his armor on without a squire. Let's face it. Yeah. these guys are you know. <laughs> Is the white bull like helping uh, Arthur Dane get dressed? They're <laughs> like mean... getting each other dressed. No, yeah. it's squires. I don't think Wyla's lifting up uh, the White Bull's uh, breastplate, you know, like, probably, like that. This thing is probably heavy as hell, right? Yeah. Um, I think, and they're not taking care of their own horses or Yeah, all true. Yeah, so there's, there's, um, this is a there's, really, this is one of the strongest, most important parts of the parallel, I think, is George saying, look, because he, he puts it in there multiple times. He says, mm-hmm. he, he takes great, he makes it very clear there were lots of witnesses to this wedding. And then he tits a, puts a footnote in there just to say, <laughs> Look, the singers love to sing about this event and show that it was just the Kingsguard standing off versus all of Rogar's men. But really, there were archers and He's garrison. Like, Let me shine a spotlight <laughs> on all those other people there. Check out the supporting cast who are always present in situations like this. <laughs> and they'll be there when you need them to speak up about what happened. And notably, we've never been anywhere in that, you know, in the Red Mountains, anywhere remotely near that area no. in anybody's point of view so far in the sign of ice and fire uh so we haven't had any opportunity for people like that to yeah. pop up although there's a lot of theories in the fandom about who might have been obviously a wet nurse or who might have been a squire or whatnot yeah um, lots of lots of there's endless pretty debates fun, there. fun squire theories and yeah. stuff but um, um we get a few mm, somewhat similar pieces of dialogue uh just great dialogue, whether, you know, how much, whether or not you believe it's a parallel or not. Uh, but uh, when Sir Gerald says, but not of the Kingsguard, the Kingsguard does not flee. It kind of reminds me of Sour Sam saying, we're the Kingsguard, not the Handsguard. <laughs> Which is, yeah. I love that line so much. Uh, and they have, um, they have the, also the line that, uh, 
I think it's Wentz, Oswell Wentz says, oh, those guys would be dead if they faced us. And that's kind of what Pate says to Rogar. He's like, yeah, we might die, but you're going down first. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a really, really badassery on, on point here. I, I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see here. Uh, this is where, oh, I actually pulled a quote here. All these tellings overlook the presence of the castle garrison, but to suggest the King's Seven stood alone mayhaps presumes too much. So yeah, that was the, that's the relevant line there. Um, so we have uh, an establishment, a few other things that come out of this, um, that uh, Alisan and, uh, well, I'll just read the quote here. Alisan establishes part of his council from this point on. Uh, Aegon had no secrets from Rhaenys and Visenya, and I have none from Alisan. That's what Jaehaerys says. I wonder if that's something that's relevant to the modern story, whether young Griff, whoever he marries, is going to make proclamations like this to, to shore up the alliances to Dorne or whoever, or to the Tyrells, potentially. Um, so, uh, let's move forward here. Now, <clears throat> you have uh, some notes here, uh, Lady Gwyn, on the Corian Wild plot, which I wonder if that's... I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if it's relevant hmm. or not, but we mm-hmm. can talk about it for a minute anyway. Um, so yeah. go ahead here. Well, I you know I thought it was it was relevant in that poor poor Rogar. He just you know he's floundering around trying to figure out how to solve this how to solve this problem that's been created, and um, he comes up with allegedly uh, this. Corianne Wilde, who was a disgraced young noblewoman from the Stormlands. She had been sullied, had a bastard that was being fostered in the Baratheon household. And allegedly, he selected her, hand-selected her, to go be a companion to Alisanne. The story was with the intent to seduce Jaehaerys, right? So did he really intend for that to happen? Did he groom her, which was... I, I think this, uh, the whole dialogue in Fire and Blood about A Caution for Young Girls, the book, and all the different versions of the book came after, I, I found hilarious. <laughs> There's also a <laughs> just, kind of a neat commentary on how history is written, because it's these, like these, these the highfalutin and, historians and, and uh, scribes wouldn't touch it. So you get this different... You're like, you know, oh. But then, you know, but just, but like any history, you got, it starts out with A Caution for Young Girls, and it becomes... Uh, what were the some? Of, I can't remember some of the other names, but it just uh, uh, yeah, the Book of Love. <laughs> and so and so. I mean, it's yeah. just like a uh, game of telephone at the end. <laughs> so the weird thing to me was, um, you know, okay, I I think there's one whole side which is why spend all of this time on what is at the end of the day a fairly distasteful side story, right? It's a story about a non-event. Because this plan doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing, you know, and this is where my historian's side comes more to the fore, is all of this stuff about, like, uh, you know, this sort of slightly pornographic uh, fiction novel that, you know, ends with, uh, you know, someone repenting, right? Pornography disguised as, as moralizing, essentially. Um that has a real historical foundation. It's called the Picaresque novel. It's a whole genre. Think things like Mull Flanders, Vanity Fair, etc. Um, the problem is those that genre of books really couldn't exist without the printing press. Um, that you know you're you're talking about a society in which like 
90 plus percent of the population are illiterate. Um, you know, books have to be copied by hand. And I actually, at one point on Tumblr, like sat down and did the math. And I was like, it would take months and months and months and months and months to produce one copy. Oh boy. But to have hundreds, if not thousands of copies of a theoretically banned book floating around <laughs> seems unlikely. Like it's the kind of thing that you can do if you have an underground press, <laughs> like, cause you only have to like squat in some, you know, rented house for a week to like print out, you know, a couple dozen copies and you move on. I think what we're realizing Whereas, is this is, this is evidence of some kind of incomancy, some sort of magical printing press is happening underground. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I, I think it's more just like, you know, George R. R. Martin sometimes has problems with math. Like, if there were maybe, fair, tough but fair. you know, a, 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 a dozen, you know, or something like that, like, you might expect that. Like, it's not like you didn't see this kind... I mean, I think the, the most sort of prevalent pre-printing press version I can think of is something like uh, Boccaccio's Decameron. Mm. Right? Although that involved a fair amount of, like, you know, even though it was sort of naughty literature... There was a certain amount of like elite sponsorship, oh. right? It was a book that like, you know, well-educated men of the world would own a copy. They might, um, you know, they might keep it under lock and key so that their wife didn't find it. But it was something that was around. Um, whereas, you know, I just don't think in in the particular world that Martin has has set up that you'd quite see this phenomenon. I think that's a fair uh, criticism. Um, we got a super chat we should answer. It's a little bit related to, uh, it's well, it's very related to the original Tower of Joy. Um, given Rhaegar's, this is from, whose question is this from? This is from, uh, oh, Marvin Martian. Given Rhaegar's smarts was declaring Lyanna queen at the tourney and the issues it would cause part of some larger plan or prophecy, or was he just, mm, uh, this is me adding on to the question, or was he just, you know, thinking with his, with his balls or something, or was it, uh, <laughs> or was he just maybe not as smart as people think he is or something like that? What do you guys think mm. about, uh, Rhaegar's declaration? Was it a plan or just kind of a, an emotional thing or what? Uh, I'm always of the opinion that he declared her impulsively as a reward to her because he knew she was the Knight of the Laughing Tree. He yeah. discovered her identity and in his, you know, kind of, desire to recognize her for that he miscalculated so i guess i kind of i kind of fall on the Rhaegar's wasn't as smart as <laughs> in this instance yeah. i you know I, yeah. I don't think certainly he wasn't as smart as he was across the table or you know but in this yeah certainly less sort of consistently politically minded yeah i think that's the thing it's like Rhaegar had a certain amount of interest in politics but like the prophecy was the thing that came hmm. first yeah. Whereas Jahara seems to be very much a person of this world. Yeah. Yeah. There's almost nothing about him talking magic, really. Uh, yeah. There's a there's a couple of tidbits, but we'll we'll talk about that some other time. That would be very far off topic right now. <laughs> um. So let's see. Let's talk. Let's 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 think about this for a second. Earlier, I mentioned Alyssa and how she was sort of a peacemaker, and this is something you touched on as well, Lady Gwen, where you have these these over prideful. Uh, quick to fight characters um, and you have a standoff like this, it's almost always going to result in blood. But Alyssa and her authority of regent 
I was able to say no. Just say, okay, this ends now. We're not going to fight. Oh, now it ends. Aha. Mm. Mm. I didn't do that on purpose. I, but I my thought shirt, of another one. My shirt one. Is, has the perfect quote here. Uh, I almost wore that. Too. <laughs> <So> I, <laughs> it would have been twinsies. <laughs> um, there was another one, too, as as we were talking. Um, it was the actual Baratheon uh, betrothed. Alisanne was supposed to be betrothed to this Baratheon. Oh, guy. yeah, of course. Which is, yeah, Lyanna yeah. to Robert. Obvi- oh, geez, yeah. that's, I missed that one. Yeah. That's really obvious. Good call. Good call. Yeah. And, uh, of course, uh, well, actually, Stephen, did you have anything to say about that? Uh, no, I think you, you've got it all. I'm going to save my uh, save my powder for the Doctrine okay, of Exceptionalism. Okay, cool. All right, so one other parallel for the Tower of Joy, then we're going to do our other parallel lives and answer a question, and then we'll move on to the Doctrine of Exceptionalism, uh, minus any other lingering questions we have for the Tower of Joy. Um, yeah, that last parallel would be the one of the reasons they called it the Tower of Joy. That's a nickname Rhaegar gave it. It's not. It wasn't like its official title. And the reason they called it that is they, they got to live there for a while. They had like a slice of living out their romance without the problems of the world um, and before it all went horribly downhill. Uh, but they did have a time of, of happiness and joy, uh, which Jaehaerys and Alysanne got that too, but it was after this incident. They had their showdown and because Alyssa and Cooler Heads prevailed, they got to go off and be a couple. Whereas the showdown was well, by the time the showdown happened at the Tower of Joy, Rhaegar was already dead. So that was there was no chance of anything a happy ending at that point for them. Um, but that's uh, that's kind of another part of this story that lines up in a in a sense, kind of in a mirror image way. Um, okay, so let's do a parallel lives. And uh, while we while people are thinking about the answer, we've got a couple of questions to answer. So okay, this time, let's think about two characters that have a lot in common. And Let's see here. Let's start with um, this this factoid. They're both raised among the commoners, but no, they're princes. One shaves his head, the other dyes his hair. They both wear straw hats. They have very similar descriptions of their eyes. Uh, here's one that's har- a clue that's hard to give without kind of giving the whole thing away. <laughs> they both have a main protector who has four letters in his name, is a knight with three of the four letters are the same. And both of those protectors got in trouble for attacking um, uh, someone who was much more powerful uh, of greater blood than them and got in big trouble for it. Um, Also, these two could have a similar death, but one of them is still alive. So let's answer these questions while you guys ponder the answer to that. And we'll come back with the answer and a fuller explanation. Okay, so this question we have, well, here's not a question, from Little Hammer, Super Chat. I heart you guys. Hi, Aziz and Ashea, and your pet kitten, if he still exists. We have, well, he's not a kitten anymore because he's a cat, but we have five cats, and they, uh, we haven't had any, we haven't lost any cats, so we have all our cats still. They're ver- doing very well, and so far they haven't wandered by the camera, but often they do. Um, as for a question from uh, Thomas Pappas, hey, Mahelminth, I'm curious as to whether anyone on the panel believes we will see a Tower of Joy 3.0 in Winds or, Dr- or a Dream for Spring, and any guesses as to what that would look like, if so. Um, I'm not sure about that. I think our, I think this is more about, like what I said about the, George kind of preparing to re-explain the original Tower of Joy because it hasn't really been fleshed out. But I'm open to other interpretations. What do y'all think? Uh, Lady Gwen, you go first this time. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you because I think the Tower of Joy, Tower of Joy, 
uh, Rhaegar and Lyanna is kind of the central it's the central mystery from which so much of the story we're we're talking about flows so um, I just think it's going to be more explanation exposition about what happened there Cool. What about you, Stephen? He's got his job cut out for him with that. So. that yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of agree that, um, I mean, I think there may be something similar in like, you know, I, I don't necessarily think we're going to see like an exact replication of uh, hashtag boat sex, but like there's got to be some moment for, you know, uh, John and, and Daenerys when their story kind of hits its peak because like you need something to reflect back to when like the sacrifices have to happen. That's a great um, point. Yeah. Hmm. But like, I agree that I think there's like enough time that's going to need to be spent just sort of explaining what actually happened at the tower of joy in a way that actually kind of lands emotionally. Hmm. Um, I think that was my major problem with the way that the show did it in that it was all kind of like, um, you know, fact-based or like, you know, oh my god, John's actually a Targaryen <laughs> and he's legitimate after all. Yeah. But like, what we didn't really get was like, you know, and this is the payoff for like Ned's whole story. This is the payoff for like John's whole identity crisis. That's the stuff that kind of happened. I like that uh, theory a lot, bringing up John and, and Danny there because there's a lot of potential for a lot of different people to uh dislike their pairing um to react to to object to it on moral grounds on political grounds on a lot of different for a lot of different reasons so and forget the fact that john will be undead <laughs> i mean that just creates a whole nother wrinkle <laughs> which the show is kind of ignoring yeah his, his whole humanity is uh open yeah can he even breathe i mean can he even does that even like his does his junk still work i don't know like there's all these weird <laughs> questions that have to be Oh Lord! I thought we'd I thought we'd gotten away with this when like we were still debating whether Bran can still have kids. It's like, oh please, let's not go into how many different Starks do we have to f talk about whether their things work? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another uh, comment slash question from JoJo Lady Dane says that uh, she points out that the Scarlet Shadow is a bit of a nod to Liana in a sense because even though she's more of a nod to Brienne, because the Scarlet Shadow is introduced as a mystery knight. Yeah. So that is a good catch. Very good catch. I like that. And of course, this is at the Golden Wedding. Uh, if, right? I think so, right? I think it was at the Golden Wedding. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. She was at the, the War for the White Cloaks. Right. Imagine if she would have won. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been cool. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been Shades of the Renly's Rainbow Guard for sure then. Really? Really? really yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let us talk about the doctrine of exceptionalism. Um, oh, actually, no. Uh, let's let's go back to our parallel lives and answer that real quick, and then we'll do the doctrine right. of exceptionalism, and then we are done for the day. Uh, so um, the answer to the question, uh, I think a lot of you probably figured it out, and it's it's sequential, right? We got egg on the fifth and egg on the sixth. Both of them. Sh one uh, egg on the fifth shaved his head. Aegon the Sixth dyes his hair. They both are introduced wearing straw hats. They have very similar eye color. Uh, I mean, of course, purple. And I don't mean purple. I mean, I think it's specifically dark purple that they both have. Mm -hmm. uh, and Sir Duck and Sir Dunk. I, I can see if you hadn't ever noticed that comparison, that's one you'll never forget now. <laughs> Dunk and Duck, <laughs> right? And they're both very loyal to their uh, king and uh, from a young age. 
I pointed out that one of them, they each attacked someone that got in trouble for it. Dunk attacked Arian, uh, Bright Flame, and got in trouble for that. And Duck attacked the era of, I think it was Long Table? One of those Reach Houses and had to, after the dude, the heir, stole his sword. It's... And uh, he hammered him mm. <laughs> and had to yeah. run to the Golden Company. Uh, so, because they have so many other things in common, and because Wildfire is... A very possible thing for King's Landing, and young Griff slash Aegon the Sixth is not unlikely to be in King's Landing around the same time that a lot of these predictions for wildfire coming. We could have them dying in the same manner as well. Although I don't think young Griff is going to die to wildfire while trying to hatch eggs. That is almost certainly what happened to Aegon the Fifth. So they could both die to wildfire, which would be well. I would really slam dunk this parallel if it isn't already pretty, uh, if it isn't already quite clear. So that's pretty strong. I like that one a lot. It's, it's pretty straightforward. One of the more straightforward parallels. And, uh, well, we'll just have to see how it goes. Do you guys have um, anything to add to that? I think a lot of that we talked about already, but just in case, I'll throw mm -hmm. that over to you guys. No. Nope. All right, cool. Well, let's go to the doctrine of exceptionalism. Okay. Uh, the whole the point behind the doctrine of, of exceptionalism was to figure out a workaround between the Targaryen's background and incest uh, and their dragons to make it work with the fact that the seven were not okay with pretty much any of those things. So uh, Lady Gwen, you've got several notes here I can see. So let's start with you. Um, we have one of the ways this is, takes place is that they send out seven sort of uh, messengers who spread the word. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, tell us about them. Well, uh, so they they go out. There's three men, four women. Uh, three of them are Septons: Septon Rolo, Septon Alfin, uh, will be important pretty soon in Jaharis's plotting. But uh, I noted cunning Septon Baldric, who is a nod to character Baldric from Blackadder, <laughs> whose uh, catchphrase was i have a cunning plan so if you're if you're a black adder fan i hope you picked up on that one and then a couple of uh septas and and a mother mother maris from the veil and queen eleanor Custain, one of the black brides uh wandering around in her queenly raiment uh turned out to be a very effective ambassador for uh explaining this doctrine and getting people on board with how Magor's evil was not represented in these new, you know, she was a very good ambassador for saying, no, these guys are good. Yeah, and she would know, right? <laughs> she would know. So that's, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, yeah. So that's the group that sent, that sent out to preach, preach this doctrine, which I just have to say that the soon as I read this, I was so excited. I mean, I just, I think for me, this was the the biggest thing to come out of this because it explains so much um, about Targaryens and maybe RLJ and just, you know, right how, how did we, how did we get around all of this? Yeah. Stuff, so. Uh, so I pointed out that this was to resolve several issues of the Targaryens, which is true, but, but I should be more clear that the main thing they're trying to get a sign off on Jaehaerys and Alysanne's marriage. That's the number one issue is to get the faith to accept that. Uh, Stephen, let's get a take from you before um, we move on to other details here. Yeah, so um, they're kind of an interesting bunch. Um, you know, 
in, in a sense, they, they make sense as like, okay, there needed to be some constituency within the faith for this doctrine to work. Um, you know, they have like a little bit of a regional basis in that they're kind of come from the crown lens, a lot of them. So, uh, you know, there's that little bit more of a sense of like, we think of the Targaryens as something, uh, different than humans. Um, the whole dragon seed thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I so I like this a little, uh, you know, the, the Joffrey, uh, Doggett stuff is sort of, you know, high romanticism. This is a little bit more the like messy, you know, liturgical politics of how you actually make, <laughs> you know, lasting change in the faith of the seven. Um, I, I still, you know, I'm, I'm going to be crabby about this. I still want the bit where Septon Barth goes down to negotiate with the I Septon about the, uh, the, you know, closing down the faith militant and the courts, because like, that's a, to me, a really interesting and important incident that doesn't really get addressed. in. Yeah. And it's so relevant <laughs> um, for the, for the series, for a song of ice and fire too, right now with the high sparrow and everything, uh, all these issues mm-hmm. are coming back. So yeah, it's, this is very relevant. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know why that got on the cutting room floor. Um, but it's still like, this makes more sense to me as like medieval politics that, you know, you establish a theory and then the next job is you get either a Pope or a council to sit down, you know, and accept your theory as doctrine and everything else is heresy. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of the, the fan fiction I wrote about the, the high spider, where I was trying to sort of have a similar um, kind of ideological conflict over this issue of, you know, the seven are seven gods, or there's seven in one, uh, or the, you know, there's the old gods and the new, or there's just the new gods. Um, but it's it's like good to see the faith actually acting like, you know, a, a medieval church, um, as opposed to this sort of kind of amorphous uh, and indistinct blob. <laughs> the faith of the blobbing. Um, and I, I did like, you know, just in terms of like how the, how the like religious reaction to Jaharis and Alizan works out, I think is a little, like it, it's more plausible to me at this point that you would get these sort of fanatic assassins, right? Who don't care if they're going to live or die because like the seven are going to, you know, take them up into their bosom if they die or whatever. Uh, because, you know, the, the faith uh, militant is, like, smashed. Like, now we know, you know, that we've got a, a, a fuller description of what that military conflict was like. Like, almost none of their leaders are left alive by this point. And the few who are alive have now been bought into the system already through Jeffrey Doggett. So it's, it's less the case that you're going to have an uprising because... I think at this point, no one wants that. But, you know, assassination is a real, you know, an entirely different kind of threat that states have to deal with. And coming up with, you know, a, a way to um, sort of disarm the faith theologically is as much important as disarming them militarily. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well said. Uh, so, uh, another thing that this touches on is how important it is for the faith to sign off on whoever the king is. We see that in A Song of Ice and Fire. Cersei 
makes a big deal out of getting Tommen uh, with his getting the faith to crown Tommen because she rec- even she recognizes how important that is as far as a uh, symbol of legitimacy. And woo, uh, Lady Gwen, you have some thoughts on the divine right and how that really plays into what we're seeing here. Uh, so strong real world parallels. George is borrowing from a lot of real world monarchy, at least Western monarchies and Eastern as well, but more so Western. And uh, so, yeah, tell us, uh, you've you got a lot of notes here. So yeah, go off. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, you know, Stephen, I think one of your quibbles is that a lot of times this, this sort of detail is left out. Um, mm-hmm. That's sort of, you know, how, how do you deal with, how is he dealing with the faith and how, um, that sort yeah. of politics. What's the content? What's the content? Exactly. So here, finally, we got this sort of this doctrine, which I thought was very reminiscent of the um, doctrine of divine right that medieval kings used to mm-hmm. make sure everybody knew that they were no one could gainsay them. They were above everything. Um, they answered directly to God. Just a line from them to the man upstairs and um that became a bit that got them into some trouble with politics with you know with the papacy um you know we had a lot of real world kind of machinations around kings and popes and who had what rights and you know how do we how do they define that we're not seeing that here but i'm really interested to see if someday he might maybe expand on this because he's he's thrown this out there so the other thing it reminded me of a little bit just this doesn't come up as much in the text but there's the whole move where like jahara says i am now the protector of the faith Mm -hmm. you don't need a military because i'm going to protect you and we what we haven't yet established is like when did we get from a position of like kings influencing church elections to kings choosing who the pope uh, sorry. Well, who the the high septon is? Right. Sorry, I'm I'm mixing the my high metaphors. Popedon. I was gonna say the high popedon. Yeah, is... I was gonna say it reminds me a little bit of uh, Gallicanism or Galicianism, mm-hmm. which was this uh, position, I uh, sort of uh, intellectual ideological position within the Catholic Church that sort of says, um, you know, the we're still gonna be Catholics. We're not gonna become Protestant, but like the. Uh, the monarch's authority is like similar to the Pope's and um, you know, therefore, you know, the national customs can kind of um, trump, you know, what the, the, you know, college of Cardinals wants. And this comes into a lot of like, okay, who can get, who gets to appoint bishops? Um, So it's sort of like, you know, we're not going to go so far as to say like, okay, every man's his own priest and, you know, there is no Pope, but we're, we're not going to go to the route of like, okay, we have to listen to everything the Pope says. Um, this is the sort of the quid pro quo for coming down on, you know, on the counter-reformation side. So it reminded me a that little bit sense. of that. Um, so one of the, of course, the, the, obviously we've discussed the point of the doctrine of exceptionalism in terms of why it mattered for Jaharis and Alessand in the realm, but of course it matters even more how it might play out in A Song of Ice and Fire, as in, will it be brought up? Did Rhaegar, was Rhaegar aware of it when he made his move with Lyanna? Was that potentially his angle Mm. with regards to polygamy? Will it be brought up again because of, not just because of that, because of Rhaegar, but in 
super current times, like Rhaegar was obviously 15, 16, 17 years ago, uh, now that there are dragons again, and other exceptional things like the Others and Skin right. Changers, actual undead, like, I could see this matter, Yeah, I was right? going to say, you know, you know, I think John could make a, you know, a fairly cogent statement that, like, I died and came back from the dead. The idea that human laws apply to me anymore. <laughs> well, you you're know. right, because we're already thinking that until my watch is, like, he's already got that out from the Night's Watch from dying, until, you know, but it might, exactly. we might not have like, taken that far enough. He's like, oh, also, I'm also exceptional in this way as well. No, I'm really exceptional, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, so, you know, I mean, certainly I think Rhaegar would have known about it because clearly, you know, Rhaegar's father and mother were brother and sister, so... You know, I'm I'm sure he would have been aware of, of that, you know, given the way that the Targaryens sort of flipped back and forth between marrying outside and marrying inside um, after the dragons went. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the logic behind, like, I can not just, you know, run off with Lyanna, but, like, marry and make our child legitimate, because I think his whole idea of, like, you need three heads of the dragon... Like, I think that was very much, you know, driving a lot of this. Yeah. Um, it's interesting we haven't seen it applied yet in terms of polygamy. Um, and like, I wonder whether we'll see this come up, you know, uh, if it doesn't come up in, uh, you know, The Winds of Winter, but maybe in Fire and Blood Volume 2 when we get to the yes. Black Bumps. <laughs> and the theory that uh Damon wanted to marry both uh Daenerys and uh Jahan of Tyros. Yeah. Tyros. Yeah, I think the fact that that No, Rohan. 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 Rohan of Tyros. I think the fact that he mentioned that you know that that was floated to me that supported the that this doctrine was meant to just place them above Across the board, you, you can practice ah, incest, so you can practice polygamy, exception. you can do what you want. Um, but hmm, I wonder if that works for like oath breaking. <laughs> <laughs> Bad optics, but maybe technicality they could get away with. Technicality, it, yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, seriously, but I do think Rhaegar would have been aware of it. I, I think that yeah, he was the bookish. existence, the existence of this would be why. Um, why Targaryens thought they could continue even without dragons. Yes. Practicing incest and and maybe even floating the idea of polygamy because this Jaehaerys went to such trouble to make sure that this became part of the faith, the doctrine of the faith. Um, so now something, I mean, you know, sort of flip to real world politics, once something becomes part of, you know, church doctrine it's kind of hard to kick it out of there unless it's specifically overturned or challenged and so that would be the question at, at some point i think in fire and blood too or some other history reference was this ever overturned yeah if it wasn't then then it still exists it's part of it and maybe it was just forgotten by you know people yeah. like we have these i don't know if this is just massachusetts but we have these laws blue laws <laughs> uh, most of them have been have been changed at this point, but you know, there's just wacky laws dating back to the 16 and 1700s yep. that we have them here too. Uh, you, couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't spit off a bridge on Sunday. You can't sell cars um, in Indiana on Sunday. That's still yeah. a law. Well, the, I, I live in New York city where the, the wets beat the dries on this. Yeah. Issue. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we, you couldn't buy alcohol in Georgia until on Sundays oh. until 2012. Um, yeah. Yeah. Same, same here. You couldn't do anything on Sunday yeah. into, you know, when I was a kid and it's gradually 
There's still things you can't do on Sunday. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, because it's just <laughs> but, no politician but, uh, wants to bother touching that. Like, yeah, let's uh, let's yeah, as, let's make yeah. sodomy legal so again. That was another we one. We can we can finally yeah. spit off so, bridges though. So that's yeah. so so back on topic <laughs> yeah. for a second. I, I think one place that this might at, might come up interestingly is you know we were we were talking about the the second golden wedding, right? We know that the high sparrow is someone who does not look well on the sort of what we could call the Jeharan settlement, <laughs> right? He prefers the sort of an imagined pure church that existed before mm. that, that was then sullied by worldly politics. And I wonder, like, does that come up with the whole issue of, like, if Aegon VI decides that he wants to marry, you know, A, his first cousin in, in Ariane, um, B, his... Uh, aunt mm-hmm. in Daenerys and you know related to that if he wants to get married yeah. twice to both of them like yeah. I don't know if the High Sparrow is gonna go along with that <laughs> um, although you know there is the whole like other issue that like if my interpretation and I'm not the only one like if the interpretation of the whole Mummer's Dragon thing and the crowd cheering is that like Aegon gets the nod from the High Sparrow because you know, Tommen is revealed to be a bastard born of incest. Um, like, how much does that commit the High Sparrow um, with regard to Aegon? Mm-hmm. Like, once you've tossed out one king and chosen a new one, doing that twice gets a little bit difficult. Mm-hmm. Because normally you have to make some sort of commitment to be like, this new guy is the one. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So... Uh... Let me say something here too. The um, I, I agree with the. I, I like that you brought up the possibility of multiple wives. I think that's entirely possible. And one reason I think that's possible is that George has been writing Young Griff in a way that shows that he's not going to be a puppet. He's not going to do everything that Varys and John Connington want him to do. He's going to do some things on his own. No, he's he is very um, kind of yes. reckless and. I think especially will be very sure of himself if he takes the the Iron Throne because it will have been these sort of series of like magnificent yeah. gambles, right? You know, you're you're going west instead of going east, and then you take Storm's End, and then you take the Iron Throne, and by this point he'll be sort of like a little bit, you know, of Alexander the Great. He's like, oh, you know, I've done so much. <laughs> That I can't possibly make a mistake. Oh, that's a I've great, made a huge That's a great mistake. parallel. <laughs> Famous last. That's a great words, parallel. Yeah. yeah, because I mean, he'll be a with dragons standing. He'll in be like seventeen or eighteen, <laughs> and have had waited all this time to take his throne, and then everything's going to go his way. Especially that stuff I was talking about with Varus working behind the scenes to kind of just like smooth the behind the scenes stuff. He's not even aware these things are being smoothed out for him. He's just going to think it's like a destiny thing or something. And as a great point, raising uh, the issue of the cloth dragons and the cheering crowds, which segues to this, this point that I have in our document about the faith will clearly favor young Griff over Daenerys. If it comes down to that, we have him being male, him being not a direct product of incest, and he doesn't have dragons. Daenerys is female, the direct product of incest, and all this foreigner stuff that, you know, isn't going to be popular with her association with Dothraki and priests of R'hllor and all this other, they're just, yeah, the there's just so much for them to hate really, uh, given their sense of, uh, their sentiments in general. Um, so I think that, uh, it's super important that the faith are rising again and that they're going to have to be handled. Even, even young Griff, who I think, like I said, is well 
the preferable candidate from their point of view could do things that they really don't like. Um, and that could be what some of this uh, fire and blood stuff is foreshadowing. Um, another really important character that we need to talk about, or not character, but house, is the Hightowers. Of course, a running theme of all the A Song of Ice and Fire histories, whether it's Aegon's conquest, whether it's Magor's rule, whether it's Aenys' time, whether it's uh, the Dance of the Dragons, whether it's the any of these things. Up until the modern times, the current story, the story we're most familiar with, is the only place that the Hightowers don't, don't figure prominently. And this is a little bit confusing to me because there's a lot of forks here uh, in this road, which is that, well, the Hightowers could get involved now that the Fagon plot's coming in. We've got Euron and Sam dealing with Old Town. But that's also why they may not get involved. They may be a little too busy with Euron and whatever is happening down there to get involved in the ascension of young Griff at all. So that it's, this, is, this one's tough to, to call uh, because there's, like I said, there's a lot of forks in the road. What do you guys think? This will be our last, uh, well, well, we'll be wrapping up here. I know um, we're a little over our normal time. So we'll, we'll make this our last topic and then, uh, and then call it quits for the night. Uh, I I think the High Tower is going to be busy with uh, Euron and Sam personally. Um, you know, there it's also sort of notable that like they didn't really commit themselves in the War of Five Kings at all. I mean, some of their subordinates were sent off, but you know, they're like the core of their strength has been kept out of it. Uh, I think for a reason. Uh, what do you think, Lady Gwen? Yeah, I, I think there's going to be some some bit of action in Old Town. We're going to see them for sure. I don't know to what extent they're going to be on the, for lack of a better term, national stage. Yeah. Uh, but they're they're definitely the fact that they haven't been involved so far is, I think, is significant. I mean, it's we have to see them. And like Stephen said, they've relatively untouched. They're kind of like the veil in that regard. You know, yeah. they've still. I think they're about to get touched so. pretty hard, though. Yeah, I think you right. agree on that. <laughs> by ten tentacles all at once and some fire. Uh, so yeah. it's interesting. Another thing that I noticed here, uh, I think other people surely have as well, is that the high towers very consistently played a maybe took out. Uh, uh, important figures here and there when they religious figures, especially when they needed to be taken out. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. Septon Moon, just kind of his whole dis- yeah. his death was very mysterious, and it happened really right when the High Towers needed it to. And the same thing with the the guy who was in charge before when Megor and Visenya were bearing down on the city, and everyone was freaking out, uh, saying, "Look, you better give in to what they want, or those dragons are going to screw us." So, and then the High Septon died in the middle of the night when he was standing up to everyone. So, hmm. So uh, it just makes me think maybe the High Towers would get involved in being the one to take out the current High Septon, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that it will. Things will go that way. I, I, you know, it feels like that could happen. But the way things are going, I don't like you guys say. I think we're all in agreement that Euron is far more uh, likely mm-hmm. to be the a reason for the High Towers to not be involved. So maybe I, I, I kind of just brief based on listening to some of the stuff Stephen was saying earlier. I was thinking how how great it would kind of be if we had like a the equivalent of a papal schism. <laughs> Maybe the High Towers or somebody, you know, kind of nominated their own competing uh, High Septon 
and Ooh. you know you just have that would be interesting Dagon show up and say oh you don't like this okay well i got my own i accepted interesting <laughs> that's a good idea we'll have <laughs> no. to think about that some more we'll have to marinate on that idea yeah okay uh, I see a great question from LML, but we're gonna we're we're running out of time. So we'll LML. We'll, this is a good question. We can start the next episode with this one. I, I always save room at the beginning for questions that we didn't get to uh, last time around. So we'll we'll close off here. We'll let our guests um, tell everybody where to find them and repeat what you guys are up to in the near future, and then we will sign off. So Lady Gwen, uh, tell everybody what you're up to, what Radio Westeros is up to, and where to find you all out on the interwebs. Okay, well, you can find us at RadioWesteros.com. You can also catch us on iTunes, on YouTube. Uh, as of um, recently, we are working on, uh, actually, I believe this week for patrons should be uh, Sorn Sword. Been going through the Tales of Dunkin' Egg, so I've got the Sorn Sword coming out. Um, so... If you're a patron, look out for that this week, uh, out for the general public next week. Following that, got uh, the Dance of the Dragons collaboration I'm working on with you. And you mentioned patron-exclusive episodes. I'm also working on our second patron-exclusive episode. Uh, Topic is a secret for the moment. Oh, cool. I was going to say your first one was awesome. That's a great one. The first one that we have that's still there for patrons is on Varamir, Mm -hmm. but uh, we're going to be and same as you. It's our, it's the 2018 (laughs) patron exclusive. (laughs) Most of the work, (laughs) a little bit late. Most of the work was done in 2018. So (laughs) it'll, uh, it'll be, that'll be announced shortly as well. Absolutely. And Steven, please uh, tell everybody again, what you're working on and where to find you. Uh, well, at the moment, I'm mostly working on getting my new course prepped for the beginning of the <laughs> semester. But in terms of fandom stuff, uh, I'm working on uh, sort of finishing up the Jaharis uh, section of Fire and Blood. And I want to get uh, Hour of the Wolf done. And uh, then it's back to A Storm cool. of Swords. Awesome. Well, <laughs> excuse me. Thank. Oh, and you can find my stuff at Race oh, to yeah. the Iron Throne at WordPress. Definitely, and definitely. And uh, Stephen and I have on the shelf plans to do a episode on the nine penny Kings, which we'll get around to at some point. That's a little supplement to our black fire coverage. Um, yeah. Sometime after. Yeah, February. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> We're all, we all have so much to do. That's great. Yeah. No rush on that one, but it would be fun to get to eventually. Um, okay. So uh, thanks very much to my guests for coming. Thanks very much to Ashea for running things behind the scenes as always and keeping an eye on the chat and uh, all the technical stuff. Thanks to, Everyone who showed up to watch live, the chat looked p- pretty busty today. Lots of great conversations. I wish I could have been participating in those per- uh, conversations while these participating in conversations with my guests. But uh, yeah, we can't always uh, can't do all those things at once. That's just how it goes. So <laughs> a little FOMO there. Um, okay, so uh, let me do our closing credits and we will say adios. I know, Stephen, you got to go. So if you need to drop out right now. Yep. We'll we'll. Okay. We'll, see we'll, you all later. Decent chance we'll have Bye-bye. you back for another uh, one of these. We'll be running these until April uh, at the least, so we'll we'll uh, we'll hopefully do that. See you next time. And let's say thanks to our Patreon supporters. Uh, we've got our other dragon riders: Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow and Winterfell rider of Mazla Cartho, the White Dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. Jinx of House Lier, the Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of the Woods Witch, writer of Eurogenia, the Sylphic Albino Dragon with Amethyst Eyes and Opalescent Wings. Uh, 
Our Hand of the King is the Mysterious VR. The Smiling Wolf Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower. Soldier, Scholar, Philosopher, Diplomat. His Hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the Best. Lady Suzanne Sinistral is the Learned, holder of the left-handed Valyrian Shears called Penance. Hand of Beard. Lord Jim, the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog. And the Two-Age War podcast is Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of Peace. Cabethian Frozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old God and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Step Zones and Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by Flagship Braxis and Bloodstone Fleet led by Flagship Prince Damon. Our small council includes Lord James Inkblade, the Scholar Knight, Master of Whispers, Lord Robert Jacobs, the Master of Coin. Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Grand Maester Via James, and Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Walks. Lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerless of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains of Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Belt, Lord of Castle Ganges, Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Bread Fort, Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood is Lady of the Desert Rose, Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Path, Lord Garen de Havilland is a Devil's Hand Keep. Ashland Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglades. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawn. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is guardian of the hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual wielding Glorious Morning and Little Light Wise. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Werewood. Listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Hall. Lord Sidney Jesse is the Fallborn, Lord of the Blue Spring. The Vest of the Twin Hearted is a suspected skin changer, is holder of Castle Carahelm. Sir Valentin of House to Jen is creator of the Game of Predictions, free Game of Thrones predictions slash futures market. Lady Liana Kelly is of Wolf Island, protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Kay is of House Archer, Lady of Earth Dog Hall, Huntress of the Wolfswood, and Guardian of Matty Squirrel's Bane, the Mighty Direweed. King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Lady My Emerald Eyes is Voice of House Swan, Mistress of Whispers on the Queen's High Council. Rebea Star Eyes is Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadowcat. In the shadows we bear our claws. Grand Maester M. Elizabeth is middle daughter of Lunana Mormont, First Lady to forge both the Silver and Valyrian Steel Link. Uh, our King's Guard is led by Lady Miriam and backed up by Sir Dollars D, longest tenured White Sword, and Willa Crowsbane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk, and Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star. Queen's Guard, led by Lord Captain Commander Haman Hellman, the Sellsword Sentinel, Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Doom, I Must Not Fear, Fear is the Mind Killer, Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North. Michonne the Melodious, Star of Old Town, is Mind Over Masters. Sir Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Sir Leon of House Walker, wielder of the Twin Valyrian Steel Blades, Fire and Ice, and the Werewolf Rain. Introducing Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids. Our Beard Guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed up by Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the multifaceted Beard and Platinum Red and Brown, Stay Frosty, Sir Tim Corgile is Mad Boy of the Western Desert, Queen Helena von Landstein is partying like it's 1999 since 1980-something, a kingdom for a drink. And last but certainly not least, the history of Westeros is 
Knight's Watch, which is led by Lord Commander Benjamin Umber, the Silent Giant, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword of Winter's Kiss. First Ranger Zach Nefane Four Feathers, fastest bow in the watch. First Builder Magor Snow, aka Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow. And First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine, called Palewind. That is a nice long list of lovely and excellent supporters. Thank you very much to everyone who has supported the show in all the various ways, whether liking us on iTunes or ACAST or just spreading the word to your friends. We certainly appreciate it. And we will see you next time. Thanks again to our guests and everyone who attended, and to Ashea, and to Michael Clarfeld, and Jesse Townsend, or Jesse, Jesse Kowal, and Joey Townsend for the music. And we'll see you next time. Valar, reread us.